Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Carbonite Online Backup. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files automatically and continually. Carbonite is the better backup plan. Try it free at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code TWIP and get two bonus months with purchase. This episode is brought to you by the new Squarespace. Squarespace introduces a new content management system, making it easier and faster to create a high-quality website or blog, plus mobile responsive designs with automatic device scaling and more than 50 other new features. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com twip and use the offer code twip12. This week on TWIP, Google announces a new communities feature. Reuters' top 95 images of 2012 reveal some interesting stats. Is 2013 Sony's year? Plus, Instagram breaks ties with Twitter. And I chat with the founder of Connected Data, Jeff Barrow, about his latest project, The Transporter. It's Wednesday, December 12, 2012, and this is TWIP. All right, welcome back to TWIP. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, we're going to be diving into, well, Google communities. For one, if you uh, are anywhere near Google+, you've probably been invited to one or two of these things. And uh, we're also going to be talking about some interesting photography stats from the year 2012, sort of a year in review of what was the most popular, not so much hardware, but just kind of uh, settings. So I think you'll you'll find that interesting. And also, number three, we're going to be talking about Sony. We've got Tristan Hall in the show. We're going to be talking about Sony and uh, will the next year, 2013, be the year for Sony to regain its crown in the digital imaging space? And plus, a uh, family feud, actually it's not a really a family, Instagram and Twitter are uh, enjoying some irreconcilable pixels. So we're going to deal with all that. Plus a bonus interview with Mr. Jeff Barrel. He's the founder and CEO of a new company called Connected Data. And uh, Jeff was formerly the founder and CEO of Data Robotics, the makers of the Drobo. So they've got a new device out, which he and I dive into and talk about at length. So joining me to discuss all these topics and more are Mr. Jeffrey Totaro, Don Komarechka, and Tristan Hall. Hey, guys. Hi, Frederick. All right. Hello. This, this is good. So let, let's start with you, uh, Tristan. You are, you're in South Africa, and w- here in the United States on the West Coast, it is 6.08 p.m. on a Wednesday as we record this. What time is it in your part of the world? It's 4 a.m. <laughs> and I hear the disdain in your voice. You're like, it's 4 a.m. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's, it's not a problem. <laughs> are you, uh, you have your coffee and everything set, and you're ready to talk Sony with us? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm right. Well, thank you for coming on. Thanks for, uh, for waking up or staying up to, uh, to do the show with us. Also on the show, you haven't heard his voice in a while, Mr. Jeffrey Totaro. Hey, Jeffrey, how are you doing? Hey, Frederick, good. How are you? I'm doing, doing great. What's, uh, what's been new in your world? We haven't, we haven't caught up in quite a while. Uh, I've been doing some traveling. It's been a pretty busy fall season. It's usually busy in the fall for me, thankfully. Um, recently traveled out to Phoenix and Austin uh, for the same client doing some uh, some retail shoots. Uh, and then it's in D.C., I think it was last week, for uh, some office 
projects for another client. And then I'm headed out your way on Friday out to uh, San Francisco to do a shoot uh, on Saturday. Hopefully the weather will cooperate. And, um, yeah, and, and we're going to try to connect on Sunday, hopefully, right? Yeah, that'd be great. It'd be, be great to, uh, to meet in person finally. I know. I know. Cool. Yeah. Also been getting ready for uh, my uh, annual workshop down in Palm Beach. That's uh, coming up on February 19th uh, through the 24th. Uh, so that's always a fun time. All right. Well, good. Well, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. And last but not least is Mr. Don Komarechka. Hey, Don, I feel like you and I just talked, I don't know, like yesterday. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's strange. <laughs> it's strange. Well, let me set that up. So, Don, so we did a show a couple of episodes ago where we were talking about Canadian copyright and... True to form, the This Week in Photo listeners let us know that um, essentially we had it all wrong and we were, you know, we just butchered that story to death. So I found it quite entertaining. <laughs> so Don, Don came on and uh, to, to sort of set the record straight and give us the real deal on what, uh, what the changes to the Canadian copyright law mean to photographers living up there. So... Welcome, Don, to the show, and thanks for doing that yesterday. We'll run that probably in next week's show or the week after, but it'll show up on, uh, I think it's already on YouTube now, right? It is, yeah, and, and you can find the link around, so when you're listening to this, if you want to get a heads up on that, you can check it out online. Uh, it's about, uh, I think, 15 minutes or so long, so it's a, it's a quick listen, uh, and it gets all the specifics about what's been changed. Yes, and we'll, we will embed that video in, the, in this episode's show notes as well, so easy to find. Well, cool. Well, welcome, guys. This is, uh, is going to be kind of a, a show that's chock full of goodness. Um, let's see. So I'm just going through the notes here. There's so much stuff in here that I want to talk about. Before we dive in, last week we, I did an ad hoc sort of contest that uh, uh, we had Richard Harrington on the show, and I forget how we got to it, but it ended up with Richard me issuing the challenge to the TWIP listeners that they should make a photo of MC Hammer but mash it up with Richard Harrington's face. <laughs> so so we've been getting some contest entries in and I want to let if you're listening to this we're probably going to announce the winner in next week's show. So if you uh if you want to get in on that the uh the it's a quick contest all you got to do is find a photo of Richard Harrington and find a photo of MC Hammer preferably with the hammer pants. And make Richard Harrington look like MC Hammer. And then send it to contest at thisweekinphoto.com. And you could win. Uh, I think Richard's going to give away one of his books to the one that he thinks is the best. So This is why I love the internet. <laughs> no, it doesn't get much better than that. That's a great way to, to, to reintroduce the, uh, the, the annual photo contest. Or the, uh, the weekly photo contest. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I am, I'm bringing that back. We have, a, we have kind of a giveaway thing going on right now. And that's a good segue. Thanks. Um, so the, uh, so first off we, we were running, I think it was last week and the week before running this contest to give away an eye acrylic print. And these, you can't really call these things prints cause they're like heavy sort of things, ballistic prints or something, but, uh, we're giving a 16 by 20 away. Uh, but our contest engine for some reason was acting weird because the week before we gave away a Silarina book and we made a new contest to give away this thing, but it was still saying that it was taking entries for Silarina anyway. But uh, luckily, only a couple of people entered, and we we're able to transfer those over to the new engine. But in the blog post for last week's show and this week's show, you'll find a 
inside the show notes a little uh, contest entry form that you can just go in there and enter the contest from there. And then on the next show, we will announce the winner and proceed with the following contest. So, so check that out. iAcrylic makes some really cool stuff. If you haven't heard of them, make sure you check them out at iAcrylic.net. All right. Let's jump into the news. First up is Google Communities. All right. So who on the show hasn't heard of Google Communities? Crickets? It was new to me. Who did, who's that? Jeffrey? The, yep, yeah, it was it was new to me. I'm not the uh, I'm on Google Plus, but but not really. Okay. So well good. Well good. Uh, we get to explain it to you. So Yeah. <laughs> I uh, looked at it. Yeah, so you can you can ask the the newbie questions about what it means and all that. So Don Don and Tristan, you guys have played with Google Google Plus communities? Yeah, okay. I love it. Um, uh right now I've uh, I've started a, a community the day that I was able to and it's uh, it's blossomed to over I think it's over 800 people now in a macro photography community. Wow. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Wow. See, that's not fair because the This Week in Photo community is like in the 500s right now. What is up, TWIP listeners? Come on. Join my community. We need to, we need to have some solidarity here. Go on. And, and join the macro community while you're at it to keep the race going. Yes, yes. Keep the, keep the, uh, keep, let all boats rise with the tide. <laughs> <laughs> so, Don, well, while we're talking about that, what, so just give us the overview of what communities are since you've been using them and you're familiar with them. Well, it's a feature that had been missing from Google Plus for quite a while. Uh, if you look at a lot of the other places, like uh, let's use Flickr as an example, they would have groups, and you could put, uh, you know, you could post comments and photographs within a certain group of a certain topic, and have a certain, uh, you know, readership that would look at those particular images. And Google Plus didn't really have a feature like that, and and they had the community had wanted it, and they had been using hashtags and and pages. And, and sort of curating a selection of content um, in, in many different ways. So in the pho- photographic community, anyhow, you would have different, uh, say, weekly uh, photo days where, you know, a certain topic, you know, you'd put a hashtag for, say, uh, Science Sunday or, or something like that. And you'd post something science-related or photography-related on that particular day, and it would be curated into a list, and, and people would gather around that. So the community had wanted something for, uh, or for, for communities, and now we have it. So you can have a, a group that you can join, and you can see a separate stream that people can post specifically within that community. It can be divided up into categories, so you can have categories for uh, discussion and techniques and photo sharing and all of that, um, or it can just be left open. And I think that this is something that can really push Google forward uh, in, in many different ways. It's something that has been lacking yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, what what was confusing me about it is is trying to understand and reconcile what a page was versus a community. I know a community obviously is much more of a forum type experience; it's much deeper. But now that we have we had pages, and now we have communities, I kind of don't want the page anymore. So, <laughs> what I mean, do, like from your standpoint, and Tristan, I'll throw this to you, and Don, you can chime in as well. Our pages, do we, should we close our pages now and then keep the community going or do we keep, because I have three places now. I have my Frederick Van Google Plus account. I have TWIP and I have a TWIP page and it's just, it's confusing. I'm I'm confused on what to do next. What do you guys think? Hmm. Uh, I, it's a difficult one. I, I must be honest. Uh, so far, the only community I've joined is, has been the TWIP community. Um, I, I'm, I'm still you know, finding my way a little bit with it. So it's been been a busy week, but I, I understand the 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 complication there because you you kind of feel like you've got multiple places that you're at um, mm-hmm. across 
multiple social networks and it does start getting a little bit um, difficult to kind of manage all of them and I'm confused I mean I'm confused because there's so many places to post on there you know just just as the service evolves there's there's more and more places to post but I'm also I'm also worried about bugging people because I don't want to post in one place and then post in another place and they're like, okay, Frederick's is spamming Google Plus. I would like to just put things in one place and have people see mm-hmm. them, but I don't know that that's possible right now. Well, I, I, heard, uh, I heard an interview uh, with somebody, I forget who it was, but they were saying that if, you're, if your uh, community is public and you post something within that community, it also gets posted to your general stream. So if somebody just goes to, to look up Frederick Van Johnson, it will show up uh, there that you've posted in a public community. And, oh. and I think that if you post it there, it should show up everywhere unless the community is private. But I not on my page, that, though, right? Not, it no, no. Your page w- would be separate, I believe. And okay. you can you know, have your own curated content specifically on that page. And there might still be a use for that, although it's much more limited now than, than it used to be. Hmm. And communities are val- valuable as well because you can have moderators. And you can have multiple moderators curating the content. And Google's pretty good at automatically finding spam. Uh, there has been a few false positives that I found. But it's, it, you know, they'll fine-tune it as things go on. And you can have a, uh, you know, a hierarchy of owners and moderators and then just general members so that things can stay in order uh, while the community can contribute on its own. No, uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. Were you going to say something? I just had a question. I was curious um, in in terms of Google because we'll talk about this when one of the other topics comes up. But I was curious what the terms of services in regard to photographs uh, with Google Plus and now with the communities. Mm-hmm. Um, if you post a photograph up there, is it um, you know what what can Google do with it, and what what are your your rights that you might be giving up? Does anybody know about that? Um, well, uh, I don't know, um, not definitively, but my rule of thumb based on some previous interviews and conversations that we've had on social media in general is before you post anything up there, it needs to be registered because that, that in and of itself is the act of publishing and you lose certain rights when you publish things online. And then separately, Mm -hmm. depending on the terms of service, like, you know, it's Facebook, Twitter or whatever, you may be giving up rights to that image completely. So in other words, don't, you don't necessarily the the at least my rule of thumb is to not necessarily not post or avoid posting on these services, but just be cognizant of the fact that whatever I post up there, um, you know, is kind of moving into a no man's land. What do, what do you guys think? Is that Don? Is that is that your experience, or do you have a different experience? I, I haven't read the terms of service on Google Plus in a little while, but uh, from my understanding, when I first looked at it, Google uh, requires certain rights to you know to post and to, to repost your images, uh, so that they need rights to reproduce. And if there's a third-party application that has a Google Plus API, they also need to use it. So third parties now have access to reproduce your work as well within the context of the Google Plus. Uh, environment. I right. think that's how it works. They don't have overreaching uh, requirements, but they just need to, to do what they need to do. And they don't take all of the rights away from you. And I'd be uh, fine that- with that. I'd be totally fine if they're, if they're just posting an image and, hey, this is what's going on in the TWIP community. Go check it out. You know, Within the network, that's great. But if I see a, a Google TV commercial with one or one of my members' images up there without their permission, then that's a problem. And I'd have to relook at the details because that might be snuck in there somewhere. Uh, you never know with all the legalese how, how there's all these different clauses and whatnot. So uh, I, you know, look over it with a fine-tooth comb if you're interested in posting on Google Plus. But I don't think that there's anything nefarious hidden within that. Okay, yeah. that's good. 
Good. Now, Tristan, where where are you posting your images now? Are you are you heavy into social media, or are you just just avoiding? Um, I tend to use these days if I'm shooting anything, it's it's generally going out on Instagram, mm-hmm. um, or uh, yeah. That, that, at the moment, over the last couple of months, things have been so chaotic that that I've. I haven't been shooting much more than with with my cell phone, to be honest with you. Um, what's what's but, been but, what's been so chaotic? I know you guys have a new app coming out, right? Yeah, we we launched uh, about a month ago. Our uh, just over a month ago, our app went live for okay. iPhone and iPad, and the Android version should be hitting the Play Store in the next uh, week or so. Um, so that that's been it's kept us very very busy. Um, and uh yeah it's we've got in march uh, we will be celebrating four years of of photo comments since since we launched as an online mag and have progressed to print and now the app and so uh, yeah it's we've got some big things happening uh, as we get ready to to celebrate that and and kind of uh freshen up the magazine and make some big changes so That's um yeah, so it's kept me quite busy, and, and I must be honest, uh, I've been testing more cell phones <laughs> recently in terms of their cameras than I've been testing uh, cameras themselves cause, because of how busy it's been. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that that's uh, that's where I've been posting most of my stuff. Um, all, all the cameras I shoot are, are Wi-Fi enabled, so I'm transferring to my mobile device and, and uh, sharing direct from there. So um, at the moment, I, I must be honest, if I... If I was to pick a platform to to start sharing something consistently, and I've got a project that I'm I'm working on for next year, um, I, I think I would probably lean towards Google Plus. I've got a much bigger following than that on Facebook, but I just I don't know. I'm I'm becoming slightly um, less you know keen on on facebook and so i'll share one or two things and then link to the group of images um you know on my blog or something like that yeah. uh but that that's kind of the way that i've been using it more as a communication tool than than a sharing platform for my images yeah and what about you jeffrey are you uh where, what's your mo for posting online uh primarily I, I i like twitter uh i'm i'm not on facebook um that's a whole different discussion, but um, I like Twitter a lot because it's uh, it's easy to just yeah you know, link to things, and I like to uh, I'll often post you know, iPhone snapshots maybe from a shoot uh, where things are going on or wherever I happen to be, uh, and that's what I like about it. It's just sort of quick. It's not necessarily posting uh, finished photos, so I'm not you know worried about the terms of service in that regard. Um, and I do like uh, there's one that just came into my inbox. I, I like to. Uh, just you know, post a link to uh, if something gets published online, so that people can follow it over there and see it. So that seems to do pretty well for me. I I, I do like that. I'm interested in exploring more about uh, Google Plus because I've heard a lot of good things about it. So in the uh, somewhat slower winter months, I might look into that. Yeah, yeah, maybe good hibernation material, right? Yeah. <laughs> and Don, I know you have a, a project going on. Your your the snowflake a day thing that you're working on. How for, give us an update on how that's going and where are those images going when you post them? They only go on Google Plus right now. So you've got to log into uh, to Google Plus and check out my stream to find them. But uh, through the winter months, starting December 1st for 100 days, I uh, well, I don't photograph the snowflakes every day because it doesn't snow every day, but I edit one a day uh, <coughs> from my backlog. And, and it takes about three to four hours. Oh, uh, sometimes I get lucky and it's two and a half hours. But uh, it, it takes a lot of uh, time to put one of those images 
together. And I think he interviewed me about that quite a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, but people can, can dig that up and, and find the information on how those images are put together. Um, my Snowflake a Day project last year really launched my social media presence because uh, I went from zero to about ten or 11,000 followers on Google Plus from that project alone. Wow. And that was huge for me. So this year I'm doing it again, and I've already met some, some pretty big successes. We're into, uh, at, at the day of this recording is, is day number 12. And uh, so check that day out. It's my favorite so far this year. See, that's a, that's a good lesson for photographers to take away because I get that question all the time. Um, is how, do I, how do I build my social media presence? How do, you know, what do I do? Some people seem to have all the followers. Do a project like Don did. <laughs> do a one-a-day project and start the conversation visually, right? And, and hold nothing back. Uh, with all of my images, I, I give away all my secrets. I don't believe in, in, in holding anything to myself as some sort of secret sauce. And I think a lot of the people that follow me respect that immensely, uh, that I'm willing to share everything. And, uh, and that respect gains followers. Yeah, that's great. I love that too. That's uh, thank you for doing that. And like you mentioned, that interview that we did—it's a YouTube interview as well. So the just search listeners just search on the This Week in Photo website for Don Komarechka or Snowflake or something, and you'll find the interview. And it's uh, or search on YouTube, you'll find it there on my YouTube channel as well. So good stuff. So just to close out the Google Plus part of this show, um, in. The question, when I saw the communities pop up, I was thinking <clears throat> the services that are online that have had sort of a stranglehold on forum-type experiences were services like vBulletin and those sorts of really complicated forums, in my opinion. Do, will we see those things just sort of go away and and have our new forum engine be replaced by Google? Done? I'll let you take it first. I don't know. And, and this is because it's so far entrenched. Uh, a lot of those forums are very successful and they have a loyal following and they've already built a community. And I don't see people just leaving their community and reforming it all on Google+. Plus. Um, I think that Google Plus has a long way to go before they can re- uh, completely replace the functionality of those forms. If somebody wants to give a, a complete how-to almost in like full HTML website format, you can do that on, say, vBulletin. You can't do that on Google Plus. It's much more limiting in how you can format your posts. Yeah. So while I think that Google Plus will probably take a piece of that pie, it, the, other, the whole rest of the pie is not going away. Yeah. What about, what about you guys, Tristan, Jeffrey? you have any closing thoughts on Google Plus communities? Well, I think uh, in regards to other forums, that's, that was one of my questions too when I first started to, to learn about this is you know, why would you go from the forums that you already frequent in terms – like for me, I look at uh, Luminous Landscape, uh, their medium format mm-hmm. forum pretty often. I look at a couple of uh, Leica forums uh, in the photography world and what else do I look at? Get DPI. And th- those are communities that have, that have built up over a long time. And they're somewhat, I don't know if you curated is the right word, but they're, they're, you know, you know what to expect when you go to those places. So I think it will take time for something like, uh, for Google to, to sort of find its way. And I think that, but any, any, any strong sort of, uh, uh, new community that comes up is going to, is going to water down people's presence on the other communities. And then I guess the, the best ones will, will rise to the top. So we'll see what happens. Right, yeah, because you only have so much time to spend in any of these places, right? 24 hours mm-hmm. in a day. What about you, Tristan? Uh, you have anything to add to that? I, I second that. I think uh, I think you, you will always have your your some forms which are, are going to be strong and which just have a very strong community around them. Um, 
Uh, it, it for me, it's been interesting to see where you know when I started photo comment as a as a f- website slash forum um, several years back, um, there were lots of forums and and it was almost in a way easy to get people to interact and participate on them. But as as the years have gone on, like I've seen a lot of those fall away. We 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 pulled the forum thing. We just didn't see the growth that we were looking for. Um, and but you, yet you've got some forums and groups that just have incredible strength and and seem to keep growing. Um, I mean, in South Africa, there's there's a forum um, website called My Broadband. And I mean, if you're looking, you, you search on a, do a local Google search for something related to technology or photography or camping or 90% of the time you will find in, on the first page a, a, a thread from a My Broadband forum. It's, it's like become this hub of, of all the, this wealth of knowledge across multiple, um, interests in that. And, and it's just, you know, I've, I've solved some IT problems and stuff like that by, through their, through their site, things that I never thought, um, you know, in photography and, and stuff like that, that I never thought I would find answers to there. I, I did. So, you know, there, there are going to be those kind of forums and groups which will just continue to, I think, have that, that presence and that strength. They've become brands, as it were, on their own. Um, but, yeah, I think for the, the smaller guys, it's just one more platform for them to maybe consider moving over where they can have more engagement with their, their community members because um, I think those smaller forums uh, struggle to maintain that engagement. Yeah. I think I think the, the, one of the key takeaways from what you said is – is the the and and not the or. I think we as photographers are guilty a lot of times of thinking with the or saying, hey, the you know, micro four thirds is going to replace the DSLR instead of, hey, we now have another tool that we can choose from mm-hmm. or RAW versus JPEG when they both have their different uses, you know, or Canon versus Nikon. You know, there's always this or yeah. thing. Like you have to be, there has to be a binary decision instead of, a scale, you know, or a, sort of a, a a buffet of things that you can choose from as a photographer. So I, I'm glad the communities are here. There's, like I said, it's an it's a it's a and you know I have now I have another place where I can interact with the TWIP community. And for me, it's better because we tried V Bulletin on this week in photo, and it just didn't work for us. So we we tried it. I think for a year and a half, almost two years, and. And uh, had to shutter it, and now we have a hosted solution, which is Google Plus, which also happens to be where all the Hangouts and all the other cool stuff happens. So I'm excited to see what mm-hmm. happens. Um, and if oh, Twip listeners, again, I, not to beat a dead horse, you have to help me uh, beat Don Komarechka's membership count. <laughs> <laughs> I just need like 300 more. I mean, there's thousands of you out there. Come join the Twip community and uh, tell us what you think of the show there. All right. Uh, next story I want to talk about is Reuters. Um, so they, uh, God, well, the story was was really interesting. So the they basically released their list of the top ninety five images of twenty twelve, and some users went in and mined the the metadata from the photographs and compiled some interesting numbers um, about those. So let me just read down this list real quick, and then we can just talk about it really quick. So Canon dominated with um, eight out of four, eight of the 14 cameras listed in the top eight, right? I think I'm reading that right. Um, the 1D Mark IV and the 5D Mark II represented the highest usage overall at a combined 60.8%. The most popular lens choice um, from the top 95 images of 2012 was a 16, was a 16 to 35 2.8. 
The most popular shutter speed was 320th of a second. The most popular aperture, my favorite aperture, f2.8. And the most popular ISO was 200. What does this stuff mean? Jeffrey, I'm going to ask you mm-hmm. first. What, what is this? Does this mean anything? Is this, should, should photographers arrange these tea leaves and kind of you know, discern any, any kind of uh, knowledge out of this? Or is it just random numbers? Well, I think I think what's the, the most fun about it is that you can actually go in there and do that and figure out figure out what the most popular cameras are and 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 see that kind of information. That's fascinating, you know, from coming from the film days when you didn't know what anything about exposure. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's it's just sort of a novelty. I think to see that. Uh, I guess you know certainly Canon. I'm sure is very happy to see that their cameras are ranked so high. Yeah. And I'm not surprised. The 5D Mark II is, is certainly very popular. I use one of those. And but it's funny to say the most popular shutter speed is one three twentieth. I think that's just kind of funny, you know. That Why is kind of weird, isn't know? it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Without one twenty fifth, you know. I mean, come on. Yeah, um, it's really weird. Yeah, so that's uh, and but also on the on the photo side, I mean, the, the photos are pretty amazing. But it, it's interesting to see, you know, there's some really great sports photos in here. But then then you see you put those next to all the photojournalism photos, and it's like, oh well, <laughs> right. the photojournalism ones are, are, are pretty shocking and and remarkable in a lot of ways. Yeah, that was the other um, thing. That's one of the questions we put in the talking points for this: is these these stats are they skewed in favor of photojournalists, right? Because it's Reuters after all, right? Mm-hmm. So there, I think there are tons of photos taken that weren't photojournalistic pictures for example landscape photos right jeffrey so right, you know right. so i i wonder if you know is there a way other than just sort of culling over Flickr and google plus and twitter and whatever you know to see what just globally what the best images or the, the most popular sort of shutter speeds and isos and apertures were i don't know yeah. Yeah. So, Tristan, what was your uh do you have a favorite photo of uh 2012? I I, I couldn't pick a favorite. <laughs> there, there are some absolutely incredible images there. Um it, it, they're really really just phenomenal photographs. I think what what hit home to me though is and and I've had this uh, I've I'm friends with a, a photojournalist here who um, a few years ago won a, a press award for some stuff that he did in Haiti. And um, he was sharing how in his early days, um, a colleague of his was, you know, he was just struggling to get to get his images and, and match the work of some of his colleagues. And a colleague came over to him and took his lens and some duct tape and stuck it down on its widest angle and said, now get in there and tell the story. Nice. And that that is very noticeable when you see that the you know the the most popular lens used um, was the sixteen to thirty five. If you looked at the the most popular prime lens used, it was a twenty four mil. And it, it from that point of view, I think it was very interesting to see how photojournalism is become a very personal. Um, you know, people get involved. They they right there in the situation. Um, and as you look through those images and you start realizing, you know, that what lens it was shot with and, and how close to to the story these people were getting, it, it's quite incredible. Um, you know, and that 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 was something that kind of really, you know surprised me a lot was just you you kind of sometimes think if if i was in that situation i I certainly wouldn't be 
sitting there with a the wide angle lens trying to trying to grab those kind of photographs and yet these people are um and and you know the the kind of risks they take to kind of get their message across and to to make us aware of of the the circumstances of other people out there i think is incredible yeah it is it is now now don Kamerska, i have a, a question for you and that's what sure. what camera and lens combination do you shoot with and i i'm asking you this because of we're in Skype now. I'm looking at your thumbnail, your avatar, and you <laughs> you are leaning against what looks to be a military drone. <laughs> but it's actually, it's actually a can- it's actually a lens, but it's as big as a drone. What so what what do you shoot with normally? <laughs> <laughs> that lens I wish I owned. That that's Canon's 800 millimeter lens with a bunch of teleconverters stacked against it. Um, but I typically shoot with uh, I I love my 24 to 105. It's very versatile. Ooh. I've got a bunch of prime lenses too, but uh, uh, if I'm in a situation that requires a little bit more versatility, it's going to be that zoom lens. Um, now, I do want to say that, that I do have a favorite photo out of the set uh, from Reuters. Yeah. I think it's number 80 of 95 uh, from uh, photographer Lucas Jackson taken in Afghanistan of um, a uh, Chinook helicopter with the blades starting to spin up and, and sparks flying off the blades against a starry night sky. So it looks like the stars are caught in the blades of the helicopter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just... It, to me, it's a magical picture, and there's a lot of beautiful, magical pictures within this list. But uh, I think you're right. It's photojournalism and a little bit of sports mixed in, and there might be one or two landscape photographs. But it, I think that the, the camera listing and the lenses and everything is very heavily skewed towards people that need a weather-sealed, uh, ready-to-be-beaten-up camera. And uh, from the looks of it, Canon excels at that. But I think that if you were to look at, uh, I don't know if 500 picks puts out a list like this, but they would be a great aggregate of a community-approved best-of list for any particular year, and that can span across any particular genre. So um, I don't know if they've done anything like that, but they most certainly should, and that would um, offer a bit of competition towards what, um, uh, what we're currently looking at right now. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. We should we should get with Yevgeny uh, to uh, to pull together a compilation of that. That makes some that make a good post actually. So, all right, cool, all right. And Jeffrey, what's your mm-hmm. when you're when you're out doing your? I know your setup varies widely from or vastly different from what we shoot with because you're doing that sort of architectural all day kind of shooting. What what right. do you take with you when you're out there? What's what's a, the normal if there is such a thing kit that you bring with you on an architectural shoot? Well, I always bring pretty much the same kit along every time. Um I have, the primary system is a medium format digital with a phase 1 P45 back and I use that on uh, two technical cameras that are made by Alpa, um a Swiss company and with about uh, I think five different uh, view camera style lenses. And that's the primary system I use for the architectural work and uh, but I also bring the 5D uh, system. I have um, there's 17 and 24 the new tilt shifts uh, that are very good, and a variety of other other lenses for that system. And that that works for me mostly as a backup system. Is is the first reason I put it in the car on most jobs. But the other reason I use it is is just for uh, sometimes we might be shooting something at dusk or dawn, and it just you, know, you don't have a lot of time. Uh, to run around and get three or four shots. So we might set up the cannon. I might have an assistant operate the cannon to get a second shot. Um, in fact, tonight I was shooting something where I intended, left the house intending to use the cannon system, uh, trying to get a few you know quick shots at, at dusk. And by the time I figured out what the shots were, I didn't really have the lenses that I wanted uh, for the cannon. So I don't have any long primes for the cannon. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, so I decided to, to switch back to the medium format system to get to get what I wanted. Because I'm, I'm very fussy about uh, lens distortion. I knew the Canon zooms I have would cause lots of uh, distortion that would be a pain in the neck for me. So, yeah. um, And I also carry my Leica M9. as a, So I generally leave the house with three cameras plus, um, plus all the associated gear for each one. Well, uh, I want to close this one off with, and I want to throw this all three of you guys. 2013... How do you think, so looking at this list for 2012 and the most canon sort of dominating, um, how do you think 2013 is going to shape up with sort of the the onslaught of the mirrorless and micro four-thirds cameras and, of course, the how the, the camera phone cameras are getting, the, the camera phone lenses and optics are getting better and better and these sorts of things that are sort of encroaching on traditional image making? So let's let's go down the list. Tristan, what do, what do you think? You think this is going to that those things that I just mentioned are they going to radically shift what this picture looks like at the end of 2013? Um, I think I, I don't think from a professional photography point of view as much. Um, uh, the one thing that that people look, if you look at at the analysts and that you look at IDC, they they say that mirrorless cameras will outsell. SLRs globally by 2015, um, and and that you know 2013 will will actually see us become very very close to SLR sales already. Um, you know those predictions I think are, are accurate to a degree. I, the way I'm seeing mirrorless grow in that it, it appeals to a much broader audience than just traditional photographic enthusiasts. But what people take uh, need to keep in consideration is the the huge amount of existing cameras that are already in that marketplace um, you know so yes from new sales I think I think it will start to make a, a difference but I, I, I think in the overall number of cameras out there that people are using I don't think we it's, it'll be some time before we start to see um, a big shift in, in the kind of um, in, in any significant way towards mirrorless as dominating um, the, the number of images produced out there um, that, that, that's you know that's kind of been my feeling around it. Um, you know, it's it's great to see the change, and I'm sure that there there are some um, you know photogenists and that that will find the smaller cameras. I know I know of some already that find the smaller cameras and that that mirrorless presents um, very very useful for doing their documentary type stuff. But um, I, I just I don't think that the the initial volumes of selling that we'll see will ever really match the the high volumes that that of existing SLRs that have already been sold into the market, okay. um, and so that is still going to be the tool of choice for many many people. So your prediction: end of twenty thirteen, DSLRs will still have their 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 stranglehold on the uh, on the photographer or the the professional at least photography space. Yeah, I think I think if we look at twenty thirteen's Reuters images, you're still going to see a lot of SLRs there. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Jeffrey. What about you? Mm-hmm. What, do you what do you think? So the end of twenty. Fast forward to the end of twenty thirteen. What's the landscape going to look like if we revisit a Reuters list like this um, this time next year? Will uh, will camera phones and micro four thirds cameras be chipping away at Canon's popularity? I think they'll definitely be moving in that direction. But um, to Tristan's point, I think the, the there's such a uh, I guess an install base already with people with, with SLRs and people have bought into the Canon and Nikon systems and uh, the traditional SLR format. But the um, the the mirrorless systems I think are uh, a great thing. I just recommended one to a client today uh, who was looking for you know a small small ish but interchangeable lens camera and something that um, you know just had some some nicer features to it but didn't want a lot of bulk. 
And I thought that was a, a really nice solution uh, uh, to suggest to him. And I, I think it's a, a great, I think these, uh, this is a comment ahead actually for our next story, but I think it, it, it works well here. And I think that these companies have a lot of opportunity here because the, the mirrorless is really a whole new format. And I think that uh, they can really um, try and exploit that. There's certainly a lot of competition. Um, so I don't know that it's going to uh, happen by the end of 2013, but I think it's definitely going to be trending in that direction. And I do think professionals will find them appealing for either a backup system or a quick uh, camera to have in your pocket, more or less, um, to go out with, uh, you know, just be, be lighter weight and quicker mm-hmm. uh, if you didn't want to carry everything else around. So it'd be a great second. Um, sort of mini system to have in your kit as well, uh, in relationship to or in addition to the uh, to the DSLR. What was what was the camera that you recommended today? Uh, it was something off a of DP review. I think it was one, uh, one was an Olympus and one was a Panasonic. Okay. Um, I was just trying to give the give the guy a few options, um, but one of the Panasonic ones seemed to review pretty well. Very good. All right, Don, put on put on your uh, your fortune teller hat. What's uh, what's the end of 2013 going to look like for this landscape? Well, as far as a list that we're looking at right now, I think that photojournalism itself is changing, and that alone will change the list. We're seeing a lot more of citizen journalism uh, taking place, you know, people submitting photographs um, that are in the fight. And I don't know if uh, agencies have access to to publish those photographs and lists like this, but I, if they do, I would see those images uh, from the, the fighters and the soldiers and, and the, the victims of, uh, of war crimes around the world uh, coming in and being a part of this selection. And that would mean that they're probably using cameras built into cell phones uh, or small compact cameras that they can easily hide. So I, I predict that that will be something we'll see more of in the future. All right. Very good. All right. Uh, next story up is Sony 2013. So there's been a lot of buzz about Sony and, and one of our uh, – geez, well, Robert Evans has been on the show and he blogged recently about how he thinks Sony's going to be leading the way in the upco- upcoming years. Um, I've interviewed Matthew Jordan-Smith and he's made the move to Sony and recommended their latest body, the A99, um, Nikon and other – Big camera manufacturers actually feature Sony sensors in their bodies. So, and even Trey Radcliffe, who's been on the show, has been raving about the Sony NEX7. So, Tristan, you're you're our our, our Sony poster child on the show. Is all this stuff warranted? I've got, I know you're going to say yes, but what does this mean for 2013? Are we going to? Is it the year for Sony? Should photographers that are using Canon, Nikon, Olympus, Panasonic, etc., should they be giving Sony a look as you know a serious sort of? I'm going to switch everything over to the Sony camp now. Um, that's a difficult question. Um, I'm good at I, those. I think, <laughs> I, I think Sony, Sony are very. I, I've said for the last probably two years i think technologically speaking sony are the most innovative in this space um if you look at where they're going with their technology and what they're doing and the resources they can pull from um i I think they've they've managed to create incredible products their hardware is exceptional the alpha 99 is a beautiful camera it's um I mean, I, I was working at Sony when we launched the Alpha 850, which was the, the cut-down version of the 900 previous full frame. It was a slightly cheaper body, but shared the same sensor. I actually owned an 850 for a while. Um, the 900 is such a massive improvement and an upgrade, technologically speaking, image quality-wise. Um, it's, it's, uh, the Alpha 99 is just an incredible machine. Um, I, I think... 
the challenge that Sony sit with, um, and and this is the marketing person in me who who kind of worked there and tried to to build the market share for a while when I was there. Um, the the challenge you sit with is people in the photographic industry. It's it differs from region to region, obviously, but but certainly there are communities that are very closed mind in terms of of other than Nikon and Canon. I mean, in South Africa, it's like you know Nikon and Canon is is all photographers want to want to look at. Um, you know they 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 mirrorless here is still very much in its infancy. Um, Panasonic as a brand has practically no representation in in South Africa. Um, you know, Olympus is struggling for for a foothold. Pentax is struggling. So when I look at that kind of thing, Sony Sony have definitely established themselves in a very short period of time as a a significant number three player in the market. But I think the gap between them and Canon is is going to be around for a while still. Um, certainly from a traditional SLR kind of con- perspective or, you know, that type of camera. Um, granted, Sony's cameras have a translucent mirror, so they, they are slightly different at the core. But the, the the problem that they're sitting with is people are not going to change easily to to the Sony system because it, it costs money. It's too expensive for them to do it. There are people that are, are able to do it, um, and uh, but but generally the general consumer is not able to make that switch. There's nothing, Where I there's think nothing they, that's like that compelling about. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's compelling because the technology is amazing, and you know the the images and like you're saying, you're leading on a lot of on on a lot of the the, the bleeding edge of technology, but. Mm. From a consumer standpoint that is invested, like I'm looking at the the gear that I have right now and I'm thinking, what would push me over the edge to get rid of that stuff and replace it with something else? When for me, the primary is taking photos. You know, it's not exactly. unless unless it can do something significantly different than what I can do now, then, um, you know, then there's there's no sort of incentive for me to move over to a, a completely different system. You know, I think that's the thing. I mean, the, the Sony offers. If you if you were buying a new camera today, I would definitely encourage you to look at what Sony has. Mm-hmm. If you look at at their price points, um, they they offer you a higher frame rate. They offer you a better autofocus experience, particularly in video mode. A lot of consumers, you know, buy an SLR that shoots video, thinking, you know, great, I'm now going to replace both products, and realize that shooting video on an SLR is is not consumer orientated. You know, to, for the large part, it's not a case of, you know, you're picking up and shooting video like you would with a, a normal video camera. Um, you know, they, they, there's a bit more behind the process, and certainly I've I've had a lot of people that are, are discouraged by this slow autofocus in video mode and that on other SLRs. Sony's got their phase detect focusing running um, you know, in video as well as in stills. So you're getting that same speed of focusing system that we used to in stills but on the video side. And so from an all-round consumer perspective, I think it's it's a fantastic camera. But you know, Zeiss lenses are incredibly sharp. They're fantastic. The system has the access to these wonderful lenses, but they're not cheap lenses. Um, you know, there is a slight premium that you're paying when you're changing over to that kind of thing. And so you've you've got to be, you know, you've you've got to have a bit of a deep pocket if you're going to make that change to gain those smaller advantages, which you, you may not really be able to to find the benefit from. If you're a pro photographer and it, it's going to allow you to to do a bit more and you you're earning your money from it, by all means, you know, if you want to make that decision to switch, go for it. Um, I think where Sony's going to gain huge inroads is is on the mirrorless side. Um, you know, people 
you're buying a mirrorless camera, whether you're shooting Nikon or Canon, you, you don't have to be limited to buying a Nikon or Canon mirrorless camera. Um, and in that regard, Sony's uh, NEX system, I think, is is some of the best. Uh, I mean, I've tested Olympus's OMD EM5 this year. Um, it's a fantastic camera. But my my favorite camera of the year so far is the Sony NEX6. It's it's um, an absolutely incredible machine. It's a step down from from the NEX7 in their range, but in many ways I think it is a much more refined machine and a and a beautiful camera for people to consider. And and those that success, the fact that Sony's been there in that mirrorless market for longer than Nikon or Canon, um, you know they've certainly you know refined their their cameras better. And I think that that's really going to put them in, in a strong position from a consumer adoption point of view. But, but Sony's challenge to gain market share in, in uh, photography is really going to exist not because of their hardware, um, but because of the company and its perceptions. And that's really, you know, had, had they continued to be such a strong player in television and in gaming and, and, you know, all of those other electrical areas where, you know, guys have their products in their home, um, I think it would be an easy decision for someone new to buying a camera to say, well, I own a, a PlayStation, I own a, a Sony TV, let me, let me look at what Sony's cameras are like. But um, I think the dark horse in this race certainly would land up being in, in markets like in South Africa, for example, is, is actually going to land up being the likes of someone like Samsung or that or, you know, or a player who's got a much is growing in the electronic sphere. You know, I've got a Samsung phone, a Samsung TV, and that kind of thing. Um, fortunately for Sony, you know, those kind of companies are, are a bit behind still in terms of camera development, and they they at the leading edge. So they need to capitalize on that now if they're going to build and make that a success for themselves. So then, so let's leave it at this. So. For you, so one of the things you were saying is if you're if you are in the market, you're a new photographer, you're in the market for a new camera system completely. Then Sony definitely makes sense to to add to your list of things to check out. So that said, absolutely, which which products in the Sony lineup would you consider and, and would you point people at and put both on the sort of the micro entry level or not even entry level, sort of the, the prosumer advanced amateur side with, say, micro four-thirds and mirrorless, and then on the DSLR, larger, more serious photographer side? Ooh, um, I, I think the Alpha 57, I, I, I wouldn't go for the, the entry level 37. I think the Alpha 57 is great if you're looking for a more SLR type of camera on, on the mid to lower range. Um, that That's an incredible machine, and I think... Uh, then you look at the 77, and if you want to go full frame, the 99 is is still a uh, the 99 is an absolutely lovely machine. I still wish I'd got more time to spend with it. Um, if you're looking mirrorless, though, I I would say to you, um, as much as I love the NEX7, and I shot with the NEX7 for the last year, it's it's been great. Um, I think I would be looking at the NEX6 right now. Um, you know, it's got Sony because Sony, one of the big changes Sony have made with the Alpha 99 and the NEX6 is they've gone to a standard hot shoe. Um, so that, that has been a big, uh, big change for them. And, uh, with both those cameras, you've got the now standard hot shoe, so you can pop pocket wizards on there, for example. Um, you know, that, and that, that's a big change for, for Sony users. Um, so I, I would say mirrorless NEX6. Um, and the NEX5R, they, they're both great cameras. They've got built-in Wi-Fi. And, and something that's very, very interesting, which I think has been overlooked in some, uh, to some degree, is that 
you know, there's a lot of talk of Android coming into cameras and that, and we've seen that with like Samsung's Galaxy camera. But what Sony have done with the NEX 5R and the NEX 6 is they've got what they call play memory camera apps. So you can actually install applications onto the firmware of their cameras. Um, granted, at the moment, it's in select markets. Like in South Africa, we don't have the ability to do it yet. Um, but you can install an app for doing time-lapse photography, for example. Or, you know, there, there is apps for being able to do enhanced black and white filters and things. So you're not limited anymore um, to, to just what the camera comes with. Um, so, yes, it's not a, an, an Android-type operating system, but their firmware is allowing you to in, increase the capabilities of your camera by installing various applications. And I think that the success for that will be whether Sony opens up that um, developer option to third parties. If, if they allow other people to develop for the camera platform, I think they'll get to see a much greater direction of where consumers want their cameras to go. Um, and and rather than keeping it closed and only developing stuff in house, yeah. Wow. Well, like we said before, Sony. You know, it's a, it's an interesting. Is this a, sort of an interesting feel that I have about Sony? Because I love Sony. You know, they do some really cool stuff. But then on the same token, I remember, I still remember back, and I'm bitter. I still remember the A track format. You you remember that, Tristan? <laughs> When when yeah. when Napster was when came out and uh, MP3s were all the rage, and then Sony said, "No, we have a better format. It's only going to work with Memory Stick, which of course only works with our stuff." <laughs> so. I- you know, I think that 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 is the critical thing. Sony is their worst enemy sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and and that's where the biggest challenge will come. It's, it's internal issues sometimes that that prevent them from being able to to make a, a greater success of their products. Um, you know, they've done, for example, Memory Stick. For the one thing, Memory Stick had an advantage of. If you go back three or four years ago, um, Memory Sticks had a a higher transfer rate um, at a better price point. Um, than SD cards. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was one of the reasons Sony launched Memory Stick. In, in the very early days, um, you know, Sony were one of the first companies to announce a, a 512 megabyte flash storage device. Um, the problem was that it took them uh, too long to get to market. And so by the time they got to market with the product, you know, they may have announced it early and everything, but when they finally got to market, that's, uh, SD had already caught up and Compact Flash had already caught up. Yeah. And so they they slowly fell behind but i mean you know two three years ago still um you could get certainly from their video camera point of view the memory stick was better to use in a sony video camera than an sd card would have been because the, they had particularly channeled the speed of that to it but the the point is they they should have turned around and said well how can we share this with the sd community and, and how can we exactly. you know strengthen that force and that's why i say they their success pretty much rides on them being able to open up and and be be receptive to what the market wants. Yep. All right, guys, let's move on to story number four. Thanks for that, Tristan. By the way, that was that was my my Sorry. brain my brain is already already spinning about Sony stuff. I was in a camera store earlier today, sort of in Calumet Photographic in San Francisco, looking at Sony cameras and. Just sort of lusting over how cool they, you know, this. It's just different, you know. Just play with the NEX6. I, I, I'm telling you that camera is. is I'm afraid incredible. to. I'm afraid to pick it up. <laughs> it's like going. It's like going onto a car lot. You know what? I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna sit in the Tesla. That's it. I'm just gonna sit in it. You know. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're like, uh, <laughs> how did this happen? 
Frederick, right. can I add one small thing to, uh, to that discussion about Sony? Sure. I, I just wanted to, to, to make a point that I think there's a, a bit of a branding problem with Sony. If you're an aspiring photographer, uh, you've got to climb a ladder. Uh, it can be a, a Sony, a Canon, a Nikon, whatever ladder you're going to climb, you're probably going to buy multiple cameras, lenses, and equipment from that same company. Um, Sony is, uh, in the eyes of the consumer, they are not a camera company. Uh, they're, they make TVs, they make uh, electronics of all kinds, whereas Nikon and Canon are both camera companies foremost. They do other stuff, but everybody thinks of them as making cameras. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about being a professional photographer and all the pros you know shoot either Canon or Nikon, that's what the debate is with. And Sony has to, I guess, change their image to be, yes, okay, yeah, we make TVs, we make all this stuff, but we make cameras first and foremost. We are a camera company. And until that is in the mind of consumers, I don't think that they're going to get the foothold they need to directly compete as a third player. Yeah, exactly, and That's and the, the funny thing is that that TV is where where they're hemorrhaging their money. So you know it's like kind of they should be focusing their attention more, and, and you can see it from their products that they're doing it, but they're just not selling their products the right way. As you say, that branding is is where the critical factor is from them being able to change the perceptions. Oh. All right. Well, you guys you guys raised some interesting points, Jeffrey. You have anything to add add into that Sony conversation? I agree with. Uh, uh, with what Don was saying about the branding, I think they they do it sort of find their way there. Maybe maybe they become more uh, for the camera. Maybe they really push the sort of Alpha or any X name more than the than the Sony name. But also uh, last week, uh, Tim Cook from Apple was interviewed uh, mm-hmm. by Brian Williams, and uh, he actually was mentioning Sony in the sense because Apple's trying to like stay on top forever, and they were saying he was saying that you know back in the day when he was a kid that you'd walk into somebody's house and they would have a Sony Trinitron mm-hmm. and. Uh, TV and that was sort of a status symbol. And now he's like, well, now where are they? So he was sort of um, not meaning to knock Sony so much, but just sort of talking about how things evolve and change. Mm-hmm. So maybe, um, you know, maybe this is the beginning of of Sony becoming more of a more of a camera company. So. Yeah, the Sony, the Sony. I had a Sony Vega or Vega, whatever there, and that was the last. I guess not flat screen television I owned, and I remember moving whenever we wanted to move that thing to like. Either if we moved or even to a different <laughs> wall in the house, it took like four bodybuilders to just <laughs> yep. move. And all of your friends happened to be out of the city that day, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So you, you always end up breaking something, whether it was skin or the floor <laughs> or the wall. Something got broke. <laughs> but And now, you know, with the TVs of today, like my TV, I can hang it on the wall anywhere, you know, with one hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How times have changed. All right. Speaking of times changing... Um, the love affair between Instagram and Twitter seems to be over. So uh, this week, Instagram broke ties with Twitter, removing support for Twitter cards, which means you, you're not going to be able to view photos that are posted to your Instagram account in your Twitter feed. And Instagram released an update to its app for iOS and Android. And then Instagram released a new version of its software to compete or with a new filter in it. And then Twitter released a major update to its app to allow you to do Instagram style retro filters to your photos without Instagram and to put cherry on uh, the cherry on top of all this Flickr jumped back in. It's like the party's going on and then Flickr shows up like, Hey guys. <laughs> so Flickr showed up with an amazing new app. It's awesome. If you guys haven't downloaded it yet. So, but it, it it's essentially what I feel like it's what Flickr should have had out 
initially it's it's what it's kind of instagram but it's still Flickr. lets you do these instant changes and you know to your photos and upload them quickly you know so anyway the 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 world of small image stream sharing is heating up and there's a lot of drama going on in there don what what do you think about this i mean is uh do you care that that the 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 functionality between instagram and twitter is broken now I, I don't personally care. I think that is, Instagram is trying to find a business model, really, and and they can't sell ads or, or publish uh, like sponsored images or anything like that that Twitter might be doing uh, if their images are being embedded within Twitter. They they don't get much for that, yeah. and I think that they're just trying to make money and keep it within their own environment, and that gives them control and gives them more ways to monetize things. So I think they're just trying to keep them uh, keep themselves in business, and and I think that's a smart move from their part, and. I I think that uh, Twitter's, uh, you know, reactionary uh, action of adding in the retro filters and all of that, they may have even talked to Instagram and, and, and sorted all of this out uh, ahead of time just to make some sort of mutual parting of ways. I'm not sure, but it, it doesn't really affect me because I don't really use either of those <laughs> services too much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But the the thing I, I I do want to make a point on the Flickr thing. Uh, I downloaded the the new app for uh, for my iPhone. I I love it. It's laid out very well. Uh, you know, it could have a few fine tweaks here and there, but it is you know night and day difference. But correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think that there's an iPad version. I looked for it. I couldn't find. I couldn't it. find one either. So maybe and, maybe and it's I coming. I don't view photos typically on my iPhone. You know, I, if, if I'm looking at the, the 500 Pix app or or the Google Plus app or hopefully at at some point the Flickr app. It's on my iPad. It's on a bigger screen. I like to enjoy photos on a bigger screen. And I think that's their mistake is, is not having that out from the get-go. Yeah. Jeffrey, I know you mm-hmm. use um, – you're using Instagram, right? So what do, you, what do you think about this new sort of break, break of ties between Instagram and Twitter? Uh, I'm actually not much of an Instagram user, but I think when I, when I, I look at all three of you said you used Instagram. I don't know. Uh, tw- Twitter I use, yeah. Okay, Twitter. Okay. Um, but when I look at all three of these stories together, it, it seems like uh, Flickr – and Twitter are both uh, evolving and, and, and going sort of in a direction that makes sense. And to me, I think that Instagram is almost devolving and they're, they're sort of taking away uh, usability and they're taking away features. And I never thought that, uh, that it was a wise move on Facebook's part to buy Instagram, certainly for that price. Uh, and I just thought, you know, they're probably going to end up doing some damage to it. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And I think that, um, I think for, for Twitter, uh, Two on the same day be ready to launch their filters. I think uh, I think they they certainly must have, have known it was coming or when it was coming. Uh, but I think it, it makes Twitter more useful and consolidated. Where Instagram seems like it's sort of hiding in the corner or not sharing its toys. You know, it, it just seems <laughs> like it's a it's a. It, I think I think Instagram and Facebook come out looking really bad out of this, and the other two come out looking really good. Hmm. All right, Tristan, where 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 do you fall on this? Do you, do you care about this break, or are you uh, you a big Instagrammer, Twitterer? Um, I'm, I use Instagram, um, a fair bit. I, I, for me, it's not a big thing. I must be honest with you. Um, I, I'm kind of not big on Twitter anymore. <laughs> that, really? that, so for me, it's not, it's not really a big issue. I mean, you know, we've, I hear, I, I hear I Jeffrey, of, Jeffrey's not using Facebook. Tristan's not using Twitter. Don is not using anything except Google plus. Is that what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. I get it. I'm exactly. sure I got it right. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I, I just, I, you know, the thing is I find Twitter, I, it's a great platform, you know, but they just, 
lately there seems to be a lot of negativity from a developer point of view in that around it with changes they've made and uh, I mean like I've I've just got a Windows 8 tablet um you know recently and uh, for me it's not an issue that there's no Facebook app because you've got a full on browser and you can enjoy the full full beauty of of Facebook um it would be nice to have a Twitter app that I could run down the side of my screen while I'm surfing the web and doing other stuff um and and you know the Twitter applications that are out there. There's some good ones, you know, that are trying. But uh, I mean, recently the, the the one that had the most success on Windows 8, um, you know, they've they reached their limit of 100,000 users or whatever, and so got um, you know they got blocked. They couldn't uh, take any more people on board with the changes that Twitter made to the API and stuff. So it it's uh, I think. From my point of view, I, I'm slightly more disgruntled from a, as a Twitter user, generally speaking, and finding that it's not as uh, – I can't be in the conversation all the time as I would like to. Um, and so, yeah, from my point of view, I'm, I don't really care that it's not, not an option anymore on Instagram. Yeah. All right. Yeah, well, I'd have to say from my from my standpoint, I haven't I, I haven't used Instagram that much. And I, you know, honestly, I've been using Google Plus, I think – the most out of everything, you know. So Don, you win, right? <laughs> so, there we go. Yeah, it's been. I, I, well, I think as a photographer, Google Plus is the most visual of those environments. I mean, Flickr's getting better, yes, but uh, Twitter uh, by itself is is just a it's text. And if you want to grab somebody's attention with a great picture, they're going to have to click a, uh, click a link first. Yeah, and uh, you don't have that level of engagement that you would otherwise. Yep. All right, guys, before we continue, I want to give a, uh, a nod to our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com. And FYI, in case you haven't heard, the new Squarespace has officially launched. And Squarespace is sort of, they've been sort of turning the ship a little bit, at least when it comes to photographers, to help make our photography presentations as good as they can be. They've got completely new designs, which you can see at new.squarespace.com slash templates. And the templates they have for photographers can showcase your photos in a gallery, a collage, a slideshow. And to put these things together, it's it's as simple as drag and drop using their new drag and drop interface. And then the content, the content that you drag and drop in there automatically resizes itself and restructures um, the layout to look great on whatever device is looking at the content. So we call that, in the design world, we call that responsive design. So... It's just amazing. So back in the old days, you had to you know, design multiple versions of your site and then sniff out, they called it, you know, what, what user agent was looking at the site and then deliver that version of the site for that particular device. Now, today, the site is smart and can reformat itself kind of like an amoeba to fit whatever happens to be looking at it. So some of the features that they have in Squarespace are, like I said, the drag and drop interface, brand new uh, templates, responsive designs that work across most, if not all devices. Um, the, the when you upload your images, the new responsive design engine in there will resize your image into seven different sizes. So whatever Im- whatever device is looking at your page, it will deliver the right size image. So it's not just scaling the image down. So you're it's not you're downloading all the data and it's only showing you a small rendering of it. It's actually scaling the data down on the server and only delivering the smart amount of data to the browser that's looking at it. So. All kinds of things like that that are in there. You got to go check it out. If you want to check it out, just use a uh, just head over to squarespace.com 
forward slash twip is squarespace.com slash twip to start your trial and then use the offer code twip 12 that's twip 12 when you purchase and you'll get a 10 percent discount and uh, if you sign up for two years you'll get 25 percent off but be sure to use that offer code twip 12 when you check out it's squarespace.com slash twip all right Here's a, um, I want to insert a very special interview right here. This is um, an interview I did just yesterday with Jeff Barrell. He's a friend of mine, and he also happens to have been the CEO of Data Robotics, a company that I used to work for. Um, and they make a product that you may know about called Drobo. He has, of course, left Data Robotics. He started a new company called Connected Data, and they have a brand new device out that goes in, a, in basically the complete opposite direction of the Drobo. It's called the Transporter. So check it out. All right. I'm here with Mr. Jeff Barrell. He's the founder and CEO of a brand new company called Connected Data. And uh, Connected Data, so first of all, Jeff when Jeff and I met initially, he was the guy behind a company you may have heard of called Drobo or Data Robotics, right? The company was Data Robotics. The product was Drobo. And uh, Jeff is now on a new venture where he's creating something that he thinks will revolutionize the way that we are sharing data, not just storing data. So, But I'm going to let Jeff tell us that. So, Jeff... Welcome to This Week in Photo. Ah, thanks for coming and spending time with us. Yeah, it's a, always a pleasure. So let's let's talk about history. So it's always good to see you. You know, we, uh, likewise. I feel like I feel like I've known you for what ten years, but it's only been like three or four years. <laughs> <laughs> but you uh, you are I know you're you're going to be modest, but you're amazingly smart. You you concepted the whole idea behind Beyond Raid and and the that sort of self healing technology behind the Drobo and why the Drobo is able to withstand and hard drive failures and sort of raid for the rest of us, right? Now, so take me through sort of your, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but take me through the mindset of creating that product up until now, where you are now and why the transporter. Sure. Yeah. Happy to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, I I like it when things are easy and, uh, you know, you say it's a complicated technology, but really all of the technology inside the product with Drobo was designed just to make life more simple. At the point I founded the company, I must have had about six USB hard drives sitting up on a shelf and just keeping them all going through a USB hub and keeping them connected and constantly dropping offline. It was complicated and hard. And for technical people, maybe you can make it work, but... I didn't want to spend time doing it. And for, for regular people, I wondered how they just kept all of these things rolling. Yeah. Uh, with the photography community, especially, where you need a lot of storage. Mm-hmm. So we just wanted to make safe storage, expandable storage, super simple. So you push drives into the thing and it expands. When you fill it up, you take a drive out, you put another drive in. Just make it super simple. Yeah. And so that was the founding goal behind Drobo, to simplify yeah. that. And then some people will say... You know, well, hey, I can build my own raid. I can go to Fry's and buy this and that. And, you know, why would I need to buy that? What would you say to those folks? Go ahead. No, you know, that's good for a hobby, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. People build airplanes, they do all sorts. That's right. and, yeah. and that's great. If you enjoy doing it, that's great. Mm-hmm. But if, you're, if what you enjoy is something else, and that's a chore that you have to do to get to what it is you enjoy, yeah. then something simple and self-contained is probably the way to go. Like photographers, right? We we want to be shooting we want or post-processing or doing whatever we do as photographers. What me speaking, and I think I represent my audience because I'm one of them, um, 
I don't want to be building stuff, you know? I'm not that guy. Like, I buy Macs because I don't want the ability to crack it open and put in stuff and configure this and all that. I want it to be a tool. This is like I don't want to configure a hammer, right? Yeah. If it's a hammer, I want it to be a hammer nail. I don't care how it got built. <laughs> you know? so, so let's move forward into um, this new thing that you have. The right? transporter. The transporter. What is it? Let's just start. Let's start from the beginning. Why? What is it? Well, we wanted to solve an, uh, what is really an adjacent problem to the problem space we solved at Drobo, um, which is the problem of sharing, collaborating, and moving data around from site to site, uh, either to get it in front of other people, to get data from other people, or to back up even, just to move data off-site for that. Mm-hmm. Um, today, it seemed that all of the common wisdom around these various areas was that it should be done in the cloud. It was almost like it was a foregone. And if you follow the technology news even a little bit, you've probably seen 10 new startups a week with a new cloud service to store your data, various Dropbox competitors, online backup competitors, and so forth. Um, And in fact, in photography, obviously, there's been just an enormous number of sites for the longest time. But if you don't want to put the data in the cloud for various reasons, Mm. could be privacy, Mm -hmm. could be cost, could be speed access... Um, lots of different reasons why you might not want to keep large volumes of data in the cloud, then it just didn't seem to us like there was any other solution at all. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just extremely hard to do. People wrestle with VPNs and NASs and all sorts of other extremely complicated stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got some data uh, uh, from our own surveys and also some from one of the leading drive vendors that we looked at. And it shows that two-thirds of data in the U.S. isn't suitable for the cloud for one reason or another, for for regular folks, consumers, photographers, whoever happens to be small business owners. And there's just no good solution for it. So that didn't seem right. I, I had the problem personally. And so what we decided to do was to make a product that just made it super simple for folks to share, collaborate, back up, move data around without any reason really done, you know, to worry about all of the you know, complex technology mm-hmm. that you have to deploy to do these things. Now, a lot of people will say, and I want to talk about that cloud thing a lot because um, sure. I have a, a ton of questions on that, but a lot of people will say, I guess this is a question about the cloud. So with Dropbox, that's what I'm using right now. Sure. You know? So, and I've been using it forever for, I don't know, at least the last couple of years works. There's a folder on my, my hard drive. I drop stuff into it and anybody that subscribed to it gets those files. I'm done. I walk away. If they put something in the folder, it lets me know that there's something new in there. I get it. You know, I walk away. Um, that seems simple, right? So, why not do that, right? So I know the, the so let's just segue that into the cloud. So I know there's issues with the cloud. You sort of touched on them a little bit with the security issues of the cloud. Yeah. So take me through those because I, you know, I have a lot of stuff on Dropbox or gigabytes right now, right? Yep. Um, you're saying that's not secure. So tell, tell me about that. And well, there's several different issues. Yep. Um, security is definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. And it may or may not be a concern for you, privacy and security. Mm-hmm. Would have thought with with personal photography, it is for me personally. I I, I use Dropbox, mm-hmm. use it for work, various work documents. Yeah, but I don't keep any of my personal photos uh, in Dropbox. Your taxes and all that stuff. No, I yeah. don't do that either. And, and there are several reasons why I don't. Um, one is cost. 
Uh, I pay for the 100 gigabyte account on Dropbox, Mm -hmm. and it's still a couple of hundred bucks a year. If you wanted to put a terabyte of data in Dropbox, which is which is very little data, honestly, these yeah, days. Especially with these D800s that people are shooting with. Absolutely. Yeah. It's $700 every year mm-hmm. to keep that maintained. So that's 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 quite a bit of cost, I think, for yeah. most folks right there. Wow. Um, that's, so, that's your Apple iPad upgrade fee. Right? Yeah, it totally is. Right? <laughs> and out of the two, I know which I'd prefer. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, so, first of all, price and capacity are clearly uh, factors. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second thing is definitely privacy. Um, if you look at recent legislation, uh, especially, and you follow things like the Mega Uploads case, mm-hmm. what's been becoming very clear is that the data you put in the cloud isn't protected by the same rights as data you keep in your home. Mm. It can be seized or searched without any need for a warrant or uh, or other legal mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, in the future, I think we're going to be seeing more legal actions subpoenaing people's drop boxes and the contents. And if you look at the terms and conditions for all of the online services, they make it very clear that, that at any time they will surrender your data to any given authority or legal process as required. Now, why, why is that? I mean, why, if I'm, if I'm paying a fee, which I am, you know, yes. for Dropbox, I feel like I'm buying real estate or I'm buying land. And yes. it's, it's my land to do whatever I want to do with it that's within the law. For example, if I buy real estate here in Silicon Valley... I can put a house on it, but of course I'm not going to put a meth lab. <laughs> you know, it's illegal. That can be seized, right? So same thing in the digital world. You should, you, if you're doing legal things with the space, mm-hmm. how, why can the government come in and seize it? Well, it, it's not just the government. It could be your ex-spouse. could be anybody. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, it, 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 it's just, just the way a new is. part of the law. It's new. It's very new, right? Oh. And so it's, it's something that people are being explored. Uh, people have had a lot of a lot of trouble protecting their online assets. Yeah. Uh, I think the opinion, and I'm not a legal expert, sure. but I think the opinion of most lawyers I've talked to is that it breaks client attorney privilege um, because the data is no longer under the control of either party. Right. It resides at a third party, uh, which is important there. Um, we've definitely talked to uh, folks who work in the medical industry, and again, it doesn't necessarily uh, it, things aren't necessarily protected under patient client uh, doctor patient and so forth. So there's all sorts of aspects of the law. Which maybe will shake out over time, but but currently it you know it doesn't look good. So in in so let's let's paint that, paint a hypothetical, right? Because um, I just want to make sure we're, I'm clear on the data and the the security piece of this. Sure. So um, you're in court. You're going to court for some reason or some person, maybe not you. Some person is in court for some reason, um, and it, for the opposition, say it's the government that's litigating against them for some reason, they want to build a case based on X, Y, and Z, you know, say it's, you know, a, uh, a bunch of files that have dates and data and invoices and all this stuff. If that is, is sitting on a hard drive and it's at the person's house in a closet connected to their home network or whatever, it's safe in order for the, in order for them to get access to that, they have to get a, a warrant Go in, get the thing, and take it out. However, it would be subject to due process. Due process, right? Sure. And if a judge believes that the crime has been committed, then the data can be accessed. But if it's on a cloud service, how does that shift? 
Is it, is it the same thing? Like, would they would due process due, due process kick in there as well? Well, again, I'm not a legal expert. Right, right, right. Yeah, but we're just you, talking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you look at uh, what's happened with the mega uploads, the mm-hmm. government seized all of the data. Mm. It became their property. And all of the individuals storing the data there apparently have no rights to the to even get the data back, let alone maintain the privacy of the data. <sighs> there was a case recently with one of the big online services um, offered by one of the Fortune 100 companies that offer these services, where a gentleman was kicked out because the, the service providers felt the content was inappropriate. He was actually a photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't like the kind of photography he was taking. And it became apparent that they were scanning through each of the um, each of the online storage areas for content when the bot flagged something that, that, that it felt was inappropriate. Then oh. a human being went and looked through your data uh, without contacting you, without your knowledge. That is so big brother. But yeah. you know, I'm not sure you can blame the providers because the current legislation seems to be that you are responsible for the data you host. Mm-hmm. And if the if the law is you are responsible for the data you host, then you'll get yourself into trouble by not reviewing the data that's stored there. So they're almost compelled to look. Right. right. Like and a storage, a home storage, or one of those storage facilities, right. that if there are illegal things inside of the storage unit, then the landlord is culpable, right? Right. Okay. And so there really isn't any privacy. Um, the other problem you have is that there's no, you have no control over retention. Mm-hmm. So if you put your data in the cloud and it's backed up and stored somewhere else, that day could be around for 10 years. And you have no ability to delete it. Even if you delete it off your hard drive, you think it's gone. Absolutely. And the problem there is, you know, we all get into all sorts. You know, this is America. Mm -hmm. Litigation is somewhat a part of daily life. And at any point, the person who's litigating against you, for whatever reason it happens to be, can subpoena the contents of your Dropbox and get as much history as they want. Wow. And who knows what's in there, how it looks in our context... You know, emails to friends, from friends, Whatever. from family members. Yeah. yeah. There's right there's permanent history. Okay. So then let's let's talk about the transporter and how it solves that issue. Right? Sure. So so paint just for the folks that may I mean there's a Kickstarter campaign which we'll link to in the show notes for this episode. Yes. Um so people can go in depth and see what the device actually does. But this this thing was born in your brain. So tell me, <laughs> what does it do and, and what's the exact problem that it solves? Well, it just makes it really easy to move data around. or uh, It makes it so easy that even large groups of people can collaborate, share data. If you want to back data up off-site, you can do all of these things mm-hmm. without ever storing your data on the Internet and without ever breaking your privacy and having somebody else look at the file names and so forth. It's also extremely cost-effective for very large quantities of data. As I mentioned before, you know, storing a terabyte of data in the cloud could cost as much as $700 a year or more mm-hmm. if you want to have you know, a reasonable speed of access, not just you know, long-term archival or something else. Right. Um, you also might want to know where your data is located. You might need to go get it if there's a problem. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of, of different problems that the transporter solves. And what the transporter is is it's a storage device. Um, it's about the size of a Coke can. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think it's attractive, mm-hmm. something you might like to have on your desk. Mm-hmm. And it, it connects to your computer and mobile devices by software we've constructed so that it just looks like folders on your computer or, or handheld devices or whatever else. Yep. You put data in those folders. You share those folders with other people, uh, people you choose to share them with. Mm-hmm. They might be other transporter owners. They might be people without transporters. 
And then those people can access the data or get their own copies of the data. Mm, okay. So, so they don't have to, the people that you share the data with don't have to own a transporter. Absolutely not. Okay. So if you let let's draw a scenario, mm-hmm. uh, a simple scenario uh, for a photography customer, for Perfect. example. Uh, you put one transporter at home. You locate your photos on the trans in the folder that that's shared with the transporter. Mm-hmm. The files again moved onto the transporter and copied there. You locate another transporter somewhere else. Maybe it's another photographer you're friends with. You know, maybe it's a family member's house. Mm-hmm. So you put it there. And then what the transporters are going to do is constantly move those files between themselves. You have a complete real-time off-site backup of your data mm-hmm. without the need for you to actually do anything. You just keep working in your Aperture library or your Lightroom library. Mm-hmm. And all the time while you're making edits, all of that data is getting moved to a second location. It can be wherever you want. So, again, if there's some kind of disaster, rather than having to re-download everything you can just drive pick up the other one and bring it back and there's a full copy of data right there or if you're really you're really anal you could have five of these things around with your data replicated in five different places two at home so again there's two copies right there in your studio Uh, the other thing you can do then is send invites to clients. Those clients can just download a quick app from us, and then they can access all of the photos, and they can sort them by folder in real time. Really? It's, not, it's not like a link where they would have to download them all and then sort them on their own hard drive. They can actually interact with the files. So is it a standalone application that there's that sort of a window into the, the files that they have access Exactly right. You create a folder. Uh-huh. So Jeff's photos, mm-hmm. send me a link and share it with me, and then I can go in there and actually look at those photos. And that's secure. So here's another scenario. So say I'm working with a lawyer, yes, and we're transferring files and tax records or whatever back and forth between us. Mm-hmm. Instead of putting them on Dropbox, or, or not to single out Dropbox, but sure. to put them, putting them on a cloud service, um, that would not probably not be advisable, right? I can... I don't even have to, because what I was thinking, I would have to, okay, here, lawyer, here's another transporter. I have a transporter. Now we're connected. We're going to share back and forth. I can store the data on my transporter. Yep. Tell him, here, here's a URL. Go download this, and here's your username and password. Yep. They log in. Now they have all the data. Yep. And, it's real time. and is it is it two-way? So he can drop data? Absolutely. Wonderful. And it can be, in fact, it's multi-way. So if you wanted, uh, if you were working with a group of 10 people mm-hmm. on a particular project, yep. they can, they all have access. They all have exactly the visibility into the same folder. If you create directories, they turn up on their folders. If mm-hmm. you delete files or add files, that replicates around all of their folders too. They can rename things, change things, add things. They can edit photos, and those changes replicate back to you. Yeah. So it's, it's complete sort of N-way or multi-way sharing yeah. between all of the people. And a single transporter can do a lot of different duties. Mm-hmm. So you could have the transporter backing up your data to another transporter mm-hmm. whilst you're creating other folders on it, which you're sharing with clients, mm-hmm. while you're creating another folder on it, where you're moving documents backwards and forwards with your accountant. Sure. It can do a lot of duty just inside the one device itself. So then here, here's a question, and, it's, and I have another follow-up to this after you sure. But the... So if if... Someone can download the software, so I want to share my a particular folder with someone, say someone on the TWIP staff. I want to share some info with them. I give them a link, they go download, and boom, they have all the data. Yep. Right. Why is why not just have it be software-based? So where does the transporter, the, the, the necessity to have the hardware-based device in the flow come if I could just do like point-to-point? Well, e- even in that case, there still has to be a transporter, of course. Okay. But, I, but I think where you're... Um, if you're backing data off-site, obviously you want a second transporter to be there receiving the data and storing it mm-hmm. for you. 
But the real reason is that it just makes things far more convenient. Mm-hmm. So if it's a, uh, a very simple case, you know, you have a client wants to review some photos or whatever it is, software's great. But if you want to start collaborating and sharing data and moving that data around, mm-hmm. it's far more convenient to have the transporter. You create the files. They live on both copies of the transporter. They're all there immediately, ready to access at high speed when you need them. Mm-hmm. Any edits you have will upload very quickly to your local transporter. And then you can close your laptop up and get on with whatever else you're doing while the transporter takes care of actually moving the files backwards and forwards. That is, that's great because that, that may, I want to test this, but that may, that may solve some issues that Lightroom users have been struggling with for a while. And okay. that is, how do I have multiple Lightroom libraries accessible to multiple computers, even on the same network? Right. Right. Because Lightroom is not designed to be, the Lightroom libraries aren't designed to be network accessible. I see. Right? You could corrupt it, whatever. But if you introduce transporters into the mix and have that sitting next to each computer, yes. then the changes replicate and you have two libraries. We'd have to try it. We have to try it. You know, it's, I want to try it. It's yeah. a use case we'd, ha- we'd have to explore. I'm going to test it. All right, that sounds good. <laughs> I'm going to test that. But what you can be sure of is that that Lightroom library is going to get copied to the other transports and be available wherever they are. So what, what about speed, Jeff? So I'm, I'm, used, I'm accustomed to a certain speed with the cloud services I use right now, right? So when I, I know... I know what you're going to say. It's based on the network that, you know, your bandwidth that you have. But is the is the transporter constricted by the same thing? Or, in other words, are there any – is it going to be slower than just using, say, a Dropbox or CrashPlan or something like that? Or is it the same? So here's the thing. The mm-hmm. good thing about the transporter is it's an always-on device. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a little guy. It sits there on your desk, and it's constantly worrying about replicating things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you think about uh, services that use a cloud component in your computer – Maybe your computer's on all the time, but if you're like me and you have a laptop and you're opening it and closing it, what typically happens is when you open it up, you know, you're trying to drop in 10 gigs of files, photos, whatever they happen to be. Mm -hmm. That just takes an inordinate amount of time to upload to the cloud. And the whole time you're sort of sitting there waiting for it to complete, the little thing's turning. Every week I'm there. Right, totally, right. (laughs) With the transporter, it moves the data to the transporter locally, which is which is really fast compared with the cloud, 100 times faster, say. Mm-hmm. And then you're done. And then you, you close up, you go and get on with whatever you're doing, and the transporter's worrying about loading up to the internet. Mm-hmm. So although it's probably not able to, you know, you're limited by your, your, your cable pipe or your, your internet pipe, whatever it happens to be, your DSL, whatever mm-hmm. you've got. Mm-hmm. Although you're limited by that, you're not limited by it, right? Because mm-hmm. you can just go and get on with whatever you're doing and just leave the transporter to worry about doing the uploads. Now, does it, does it tell you when, that is com- when, the, when the file copy is completed to the transporter? We've tried to make everything really intuitive for the desktop software that comes with the transporter. Okay. So we just wanted to make it, again, really simple for folks to use. Mm-hmm. You can access the data in, in, in two different ways. You can have, if, if you've got smaller folders... Uh, or smaller projects you're working on, you can have them keep 100% in sync with your computer. Mm-hmm. So you actually just work on the files on your computer, and then it uploads those files to your transporter. So you have a, you have a local copy, Absolutely. and it, it will mirror the deltas over to the transporter, which then sends them out to every other transporter that's connected. Okay. Absolutely, that okay. you've decided to share with. Yep. So you can work in that mode. 
But if you've got, let's say you're working on a you know, video podcast or you know, you're a videographer or whatever, and you have a terabyte of video. Now, you don't want a terabyte of video syncing up with your MacBook Air. Mm-hmm. That would be horrible. Right. So you can operate in a completely different mode where everything you upload or download just, just immediately goes to the transporter. So you stream from the transporter, you stream to the, the transporter. The files live there and not anywhere else. Absolutely. Okay. And, and on a folder-by-folder folder basis, on a computer-by-computer computer basis, you just choose which one of those two modes is good for you. And that's very different from other services, again. For example, with Dropbox, everything has to be hosted on mm-hmm. your local hard drive, right? Mm-hmm. That's the way it operates. Yep. Yep. Other services, you know, like a Carbonite or something, everything has to be direct into the cloud, right? Mm-hmm. And so with, with our software, what we recognize is there are different classes of data. I mean, only, only two basic classes, very large amounts that you want access to, but you don't actually want on your laptop to carry with you all the time. Yep. And smaller amounts of, the, of vital data, current projects, documents that are very important to you, things you want to work on on the plane or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. And again, you can just have those sync down. Okay. See, now I'm glad we had this conversation because even though we've been talking before, this is the first time I've had a really clear understanding, especially the there's two pieces that came Three pieces. So there's the sharing Lightroom libraries that I want to play around and see if that works. Don't, you know, we don't know if it's going to work yet, but I'm going to try it, right? Right. Um, there's the, 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 the piece of it where with Dropbox right now, if I, if I upload, say, the raw files for a TWIP episode, mm-hmm. I have to wait until they get uploaded before I can sleep my computer, right? Or, right? So that will that time will be dramatically reduced. Right? Dramatically reduced. Right, so it just goes right over there. And then the other piece of it is, up until now, I was thinking in order to... I was thinking of transporters as nodes on a network, mm-hmm. you know? So where, okay, uh, I'm going to put one at my friend Ralph's house, I'm going to keep one, I'm going to put one with Bruce up in Alberta, yep. and they'll replicate. But in order for them to... for me to get the use out of the transporter... I have to make sure that they all have one. But you're telling me that's not the case. I could have my data, the files that I want to share with those guys on my transporter sitting at my house, and they can, I can grant them access to Absolutely. individual folders, right? So yes. Ralph can see the cool photos that I did. Bruce can see TWIP episodes, yep. and someone else can see you know, d- files or Word documents, right? We, we love that. And, and it's... Uh if you think about, uh, it's our equivalent of sending a link from Dropbox or something like that. We, we like it better because it's interactive. Mm-hmm. They can make edits, they can make changes. If you, you know, if you grant them permission to do that, mm-hmm. which is much better than a sort of solid link where they get a completely separate, distinct copy of the data, right. and then you're working on two different data sets at that point. So we like it that's sort of more interactive and connected. Sure. But our hope, obviously, as a company, we're here to, to be in business to make money and to sell transporters. Our hope is they love it so much. That they go out and buy their own transports, so they can create their own groups and share with their with their own colleagues and friends. Wonderful. So it, it's good for us. Hopefully, it's good for our users too, and yeah. hopefully, it's a better solution, a next generation solution on what's available today because it's interactive, as opposed to being sort of one way push. Wonderful. Um, what, what are we looking at? So cost. Wise. How much does a single transporter cost, and, and how much data is how much storage is in it? Well, uh, when we get when we when we finally go to market, mm-hmm. uh, which plan I'm doing early next year, okay. the transporter will be one hundred ninety nine dollars without storage. Mm-hmm. It'll be two hundred ninety nine dollars for one terabyte, mm-hmm. and it will be three hundred ninety nine dollars for two terabytes. Okay. But right now we have a Kickstarter running where the significant discount offer that price. Okay. So if you'd like to just buy, you know, a month. Or so in advance, um, you can see a discount there. 
Okay. And that's early 2013 that this is going to be... Absolutely. We already have 150 of these things in existence. This isn't one of those Kickstarters where it's it's a product that may come to pass. It may not come around. Right. There's already 150 of these things deployed. You have one. I have one. one. It's (laughs) beautiful. It's real. Um, And we're working on it. Yeah. But... Uh, you know, there was so much interest. We wanted to get the Kickstarter going. We wanted to start communicating to people about this. We wanted people to have the ability to pre-order on the Kickstarter for early, deli- like say, delivery early next year. So it's real. Yeah. Product's complete. We're just finishing up the final things, and you know, we're looking forward to getting this out into the wild. It is. It's a beautiful device. It's one of the. And I'm I'm pretty picky about what I put on my desktop <laughs> at home because I have a kind of a Zen desktop going on, and it fits right in because it has sort of a uh, what does it remind me of. Like, you remember the old, from Battlestar Galactica, the old Cylons with the oh, yeah, eye, yeah, you huh? know, even though the eye doesn't, the, the LED doesn't move, it just sort of pulsates on the desk, it kind this of a soothing tra- pulsates. Is this transferring day? Yeah. yeah, you can turn off the lights, it depends, you know, yeah, again, yeah, if you've got yeah. things sitting next to your bed. Or a hat, you probably would turn it off. So, but yeah, it has a subtle pulse while it's transmitting day, yeah. One other thing that I wanted to touch on real quick before we, we close this out, um, We've been talking about connecting the transporter to your computer. Mm-hmm. You don't physically connect the transporter to your computer, do you? Or you, you, it connects to your network. That's right. Either by Ethernet or Wi-Fi. That's right. Right. So take me through that a little bit, and like, why would I want to use one or the other? And is you know just what was, as if I don't know. I know, but you tell me. <laughs> Absolutely. What was important to us was was near ubiquitous access. So it's painful getting data access to your data when you're on the road. Um, and it's a feature of cloud solutions. So, we, you know, it's something we absolutely want to represent in our product. Mm-hmm. So the way the desktop software or the iOS software, mobile software, connects back to the transporters through the network. Mm-hmm. So we have our own protocol, um, which is completely transparent to the user. It just looks like files and folders on your, on your desktop, same as with Dropbox or something else. Mm-hmm. But it will try to connect back to your transport wherever you are. So you're in the office, you're working on on your files and folders on on your laptop, you close it up, you go to Starbucks, you open it up again, it's going to connect right back to your transporter and you can access those files wherever you are if you have an internet connection. If you don't, well, then you have a cache copy anyway, so mm-hmm. you can keep working until you're right back into, in, in, onto the internet. And when you connect back onto the internet, whatever changes you've made are synced back to the... them right back up for okay. you. It's going to look at what's happened on the transporter and its connected transports. It's going to look at what's happened on your laptop and get those things right back into sync for you. But in, in somewhere with Wi-Fi, like a Starbucks, you're just, it's just going to connect right back to your transport. So if you've got to bring a file with you, you need to get access to it, you can just grab it right then and there without having to worry. So it's the convenience of the cloud, you know, again, without the privacy and cost characteristics of the cloud. The one-two punch, privacy and cost, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm excited. (laughs) You guys are parting the cloud, so to speak. (laughs) We're excited, too. Yeah. And it's... It's just, it, you know, it's not an offensive against the cloud, mm-hmm. but it's more recognizing the fact that, as I said, two-thirds of data that people have here in the U.S., you know, and glo- I'm sure globally, we just have U.S. data, but I'm sure it's the same all over the world, isn't suitable for the cloud. So why isn't there a solution for the rest of that data? And that's definitely what we've tried to do with the transporter. Yeah. I, I love that piece of the conversation. I have to play that back again for myself. <laughs> so just talking about the, the security piece of it, because, yeah, I was oblivious to that too and we've been on this week in photo we've in the past several months from time to time we've been talking about copyright issues and sort of legalities that face you know photographers operating today and you give your rights away when you upload your images to facebook and you know that that sort of thing but we haven't talked about the storage piece of it and it's specifically with regards to cloud storage 
in one of our previous episodes, we talked about Facebook and them updating their app so that it automatically will send your images from your photo library on your phone or whatever up to their servers, right. which then is subject to their terms of service at That's that point. Right. So they just instantly made a gigantic stock library, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. So on that same ticket, when, and of course, don't disclose anything you're not comfortable with, but are we going to see an iOS app or an Android app so that I can peer into my data and maybe share out from there if I want to? Absolutely. Okay. okay. Uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, one thing that's important for us to say, actually, just backtracking a little bit, if, you, sure. if you'll let me, yeah, yeah, yeah. is that with the transporters, nobody other than you and the people you share with has any visibility. So even us as a company, we never see file names or file contents or anything else. Your files don't pass through our servers and we have zero visibility on them. Mm -hmm. That's important just to stay explicit. So there's no server component to this device? There's a server component, but all it does is help the transporters find each other. Okay. If you throw one in your bag and you take it to a wedding and you put it out and so you can upload files to it very rapidly while you're at the wedding, Mm -hmm. you you want to have it local with you. Because again, these things are fairly portable. Yeah, they're little. Yeah. Yeah. Then obviously it's moved, and so what our what our cloud service does is when your transporter pops up again, we tell the other transporters how to find it. Okay. But all of the file movement, the data movement, the communication between the devices is all directly between the transporters, and we just don't we're not in that loop, and nobody else has visibility. So the privacy is one hundred percent protected. Okay. Okay, so that's that's great. So what about iOS, right? So um, and for the Android folks out there, Android <laughs> or other operating systems. I so from a selfish standpoint. I want to be able to, if I have a, a transporter deployed at my house in my home office with files on there, I would like to be able to say, okay, hey, I'm sitting with Jeff. I want to send this file to Jeff, or I want to give him access to this folder without having to boot up a computer and log in and do all that stuff. Is that going to be something you're going to build? Yeah, absolutely. Our iOS apps are in test right now, in fact. Okay. So uh, we have an app for the iPhone and iPad. Uh, which is designed now. It allows you to take files from any application that supports OpenN and move them into any of your shared folders. And it allows you to take files from any of the folders that you have shared again or you've created for for your own personal use or you're sharing Mm -hmm. with other people. Mm -hmm. Open the documents, preview them, and then go ahead and open those in any other application. So you can access a keynote, for example, uh, open it up uh, in our app, move it into keynote itself, on your iPad, yep. edit it, and then open it right back up in our app and save it right back to the... Uh, oh, that's great. So, yeah. So, it pretty much works with uh, with any app that you might have on your iPhone or iPad that way. We also have an API, which third-party developers can use to integrate right into their apps. So, if they oh. make a photo app or they're making a... Uh, that was my next question. <laughs> API, great. that's how we developed all our own apps. Mm-hmm. So, our desktop software and our mobile software uses an API that we're going to make available to third-party developers or, or to anybody who owns a transporter really wants to homebrew or whatever. So there's a complete API for Windows, Mac, and Linux, and iOS today. We Since we launched the Kickstarter, uh, we got strong feedback on Android. So we're ramping up our plans in that area. And yeah. we hope to have something for Android either at launch or shortly after launch because okay. that's feedback we definitely got loud and clear um, once we started the Kickstarter campaign. So we want to make sure we catch up on that front. So, uh, so yeah, mobile apps will be there, and you'll be on access wherever you've got a connection. So, would the would an app be necessary? So, this is me thinking selfishly again, right? As a photographer, I would love to be able to um, host image galleries mm-hmm. and selectively allow access to those image galleries on my device. Yes. 
So is that something that a third-party developer would have to build, or is that something that I could maybe do out of the box? Uh, well, as far as showing the files in Finder on your iPad or mm-hmm. something else, you can do that right out of the box. Okay. Yeah. If it was something more like a slideshow or yeah. something else that pulled directly from the transporter, mm-hmm. then yes, you know, yeah, that's yeah. something a third-party developer would uh, would need to do. Okay. Okay. But the API is right there for anybody to plug into if they'd like to do that. Awesome. Um, but you could download the files, you know, and use iPhoto or anything else to to display them. Yeah, we're right at the start of our ecosystem, so. The goal of the API is to make it really simple for people to integrate their applications and environments with our product. I love it. It's exciting, Jeff. It's we're, exciting. we're really excited. I bet. You're, it's, it, we're in the middle of or the, sort of the beginning slash middle of December right now as we record this, and you're going live in a month. Right? That's right. <laughs> so, or less than a month. Yeah. Less than a month from now, you'll be live to the world. So I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm definitely going to, you know, toot the horn because people on the show know that I toot the horn about things that I care about. And this is kind of cool. So I'm just glad we're on your desk. <laughs> you, got real estate. you got real estate on my desk and some other products are not on my desk. So I'll leave them <laughs> nameless, but they're, you know, the transporter is on my desk. So in terms of people finding out more about the transporter, of course, we'll put links to the Kickstarter campaign and your site. In the show notes for this episode, um, but is it any other places? You know, uh, we're at File Transporter on on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a that's a great uh, way to follow us. You can get on there and see the, the news feed from us uh, as things move forward. Mm-hmm. But really, it's the Kickstarter page right now. That's sort of the center of our universe. It has videos showing sort of detailed walkthroughs. Has People can see what you videos. look like on there. Yeah. You can see. <laughs> God help you. You can see what I look like on that. That's great. It's a great video. <laughs> but um, but you, it's the easiest way to just find out all of the details, all the product specs and so forth are all on there. And and if there's something you want to know that, that isn't on there, ask a question. We're monitoring the forum there and we're responding as quickly as we can to questions that folks have. So just come along and ask us a question. We'll be happy to answer it for you. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Jeff. This has been a good, good interview. I'm excited. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you are, too. I'll let you get back to work, though. <laughs> so it's great to see you. Thanks for making the trip, man. You're welcome. Thanks, Jeff. All right. That was Jeff Barrow. You can learn more about the Transporter and support their Kickstarter campaign. Just head over to – actually, I made a little short URL for this. So you can go to FVJ, my initials, FVJ.me slash Transporter. And that will take you to their Kickstarter page or just go to kickstarter.com and search for transporter and you'll find them. Or the third way is the blog post for this episode. will have a link to their Kickstarter campaign in there. So definitely check it out. It's uh, it's cool stuff. I, like I said in that interview, I have one, I have one here. I've been using it for a couple of weeks now and it is pretty cool. It's like your own private, your own private Dropbox that is not subject to any security issues that other cloud-based services are. So all right, guys, let's jump into the, some listener Q&A. This is the segment where we answer questions that have been at the top of some of our listeners' minds. Question number one is from Mark Stowe, and he says, what's the best way to allow clients to share their photos on Facebook? I'm going to give this to Jeffrey. He says, <laughs> <laughs> he said he wants to embed a link to their to their album on his Smug Mug site or some other service that protects um, the rights to the image and serves, and it also serves to steer potential clients to his photography website. I think I'm reading that right. So basically, he wants to he wants to know what the best way to share to allow images to share their photos on Facebook. Do, do, do you post them on 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 SmugMug and then let them embed them from there, or some other way? So let's see, Don, what do you think? 
I don't really use Facebook that much, and I don't take pictures of people that much. We got much. the wrong crowd. We got the wrong crowd for this question. Because <laughs> I don't know either. I don't know. We may have to table this one or answer it. You know what? This is what we'll, we'll do with this question. I'm going to copy and paste this into our TWIP community on Google+, and I'm going to oh, crowdsource it. How about that? <laughs> That sounds good. So the TWIP community can answer this question because I don't know the answer. I know you guys probably don't either. Um, All right. Question number two. Let's see if we know this one. So this is from Chris. He says, I have what is hopefully an easy question, but I'm in need of a laptop to replace a desktop. I live in a small apartment and a desktop is really not practical for me right now. I'm looking for a laptop with a great screen and great processing power. Then he goes on to say, I have looked at the 13 and 15 inch MacBook Pro Retinas, which would have been my answer, and they are pretty stunning. And this is what you and your panel may recommend. However... I have a hard time plunking down that premium price when I compare them to new to other Windows laptops that offer way more storage space, processing power, and configuration options. And I also don't like the lack of upgradability that Macs have. So, uh, Tristan, I know you are a PC user. <laughs> so, what would you suggest? If so, basically, I think he answered his own question. He he doesn't want to get a 13 or 15 inch MacBook Pro, which is what I would have recommended. And I know you and Don, at least, I'm not sure about jeffrey but you and don are windows users so why don't you guys take this away tell chris what he should buy um i look there are a lot of laptops now out on the market which have a 1920 by 1080 resolution display um i I wouldn't go for anything less at this point in time i think from a pc point of view but what i would also say is you know cs is just around the corner if he's in in an urgent hurry then he should check out and see what what's available in the market currently um but but otherwise i would hang out to see what what gets announced at cs um you know i i've uh, heard that the that um samsung have some new stuff coming out on their side um you know they're not going to let apple be the only people with retina displays for, um you know for 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 very long uh, right. that's just the nature that they have um but uh, yeah, I think at the moment that there are a lot of good laptops. I've just got myself recently the uh, Samsung Eight of Smart PC. Um, I've got the one with the Atom processor, which won't really suit his needs necessarily from from an e- editing point of view. But the the PC Pro version, um, you know, is available with Core i five and Core i seven processors. It's got a nineteen twenty by ten eighty display. And the thing that I'm eager to try, I've only just got mine. Um, but uh, they've got the S Pen, which is um, developed using Wacom technology. So pressure-sensitive uh, pen that you can then use to work on the screen of your, your tablet with, and it's got the keyboard dock and everything for the full laptop experience. And I'm, I'm eager to see how that works um, for photo editing you know, with the pressure-sensitive uh, uh, S Pen on, on the screen here. Um, so th- there are a couple of options. I, the, uh, that's one of the ones that springs to mind. Um, I don't know. From my point of view, I think that those are, I'd look at something, you know, one of the new machines that have come out or wait for CES to see, see what might come out there. That's good. That's good advice. See, let's see. I, I, Windows users, you're still plagued with all that choice, man. (laughs) You guys guys have too many things to choose from. You should just, I can, I can single one out for you, Frederick, if you want. Yeah, go for it. Uh, Samsung, at least earlier this year, they were showing off their Series 9 uh, notebooks, and they have a 2560 by 1440 resolution display uh, in in 13 and and 15-inch models. So they have, uh, I think it's on par or even better than Apple's Retina displays, but I don't know if they're to market with them yet. So uh, we'll have to double-check on that. 
I know that they're not yeah, this, cheap. Uh, they're probably going to end up being you know twelve hundred bucks or more, depending on what you want to pack inside of them. Ooh. And they run Windows eight. Uh, there's not a remember, whole lot of remember choice. He, remember, he said he didn't have a whole lot of money. So, well, yeah, and that's the thing that there's not a whole lot of choice. If you want a screen that is like a Retina display, the Apple ones are going to be expensive, and anything on a PC is going to come around on the same price. And uh, that being said. The only like if, if you're in an apartment, you've got a laptop and you want to be mobile with it, you also have the option of just getting a separate screen. Uh, LCD screens are pretty cheap for high-res, big screens that you can plug into when you're sitting at home, and then you can take your laptop on the go with you. So I think that would be another option that I don't think he considered, just yeah. having a second display sitting on your desk at home. That's And that's what I do. I have a 15-inch MacBook Pro Retina, um, and I have a, a Thunderbolt display sitting right here with a keyboard and mouse and when i'm in my little home office i plug the computer into it with the lid closed and i have a full computer and when i travel or i feel like hanging out in the living room i pack it up and i go down there and i have all my stuff with me so it works it works pretty well i'm happy with it so far jeffrey what about you mm-hmm. yeah, where would you fall in on all this are you windows or mac by the way well, I've been a, an Apple user since 1986. Okay, so. <laughs> got it. So you're dyed was, in the wool. <laughs> um, but I but I do understand. Certain, certainly, there's a, a cost premium there. But I, actually, you uh, you mentioned what I was going to bring up too is that if um, you could get one of the somewhat l- uh, lower spec um, Apple uh, laptops and, and and attach it to a to a separate display because uh, mm-hmm. you could even pick up a, a pretty decent. Um, uh, I'm trying to sell one of mine right now, one of the 23-inch uh, displays, um, for a few hundred bucks off of eBay, and they're they're certainly they're not great, but they're uh, they're they're definitely pretty good. So if you wanted to get even like a, a MacBook Air, uh, I don't know if that quite has the processing power, but uh, at least something a little less expensive, but still very portable, and then attach that to a to an external display when you need a larger larger screen. And and again, it depends on what he's doing. And I'll tell you that I just got this 15-inch macbook pro and it's great i love it best computer i ever owned but the computer that i had before this was the 11 inch macbook air which was plugged into this display and it was awesome it was great you know it was the i just needed the more horsepower because i'm doing a lot of multimedia stuff now but the uh that that the just the weight and the size or lack of weight or lack of heft of that air was just magic. I just mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to go back to it. It's just, it was yeah, just I'm magic. Very, I'm very tempted to get into one of those. Um, just uh, when I eventually upgrade the the laptop, I'm definitely going to look at those and test them out because uh, it's it's not my only computer, but if it works well enough to capture two. Uh, might be a really nice way to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, guys. Our last sponsor of this episode is Carbonite.com. So Carbonite is uh, the company that understands how important it is to back up your files. And they also say they know that they know it's a hassle backing up your files. So remembering what you have to do, when you have to do it, all that stuff. So Carbonite Online Backup or Carbonite Online Backup backs up your files for you automatically and continually whenever you're connected to the internet. So you'll never remember to drag a folder over here to do that, to make sure this is doing whatever it's supposed to do. It just does it automatically. It looks at whatever whatever folder or your entire system and determines what the deltas are, what has changed since the last time it backed up when you're connected to the internet and pushes those up to the cloud automatically. So you're always covered whenever you're uh, whenever you connect to the internet. 
And when you're not connected, and if something catastrophic happens, you can go back to Carbonite and retrieve everything back to your uh, to your computer. You can access your backed up files on any computer or on your smartphone or iPad with a free app that they offer that you can get from the App Store for Carbonite. Um, they the the backup space that they give you is unlimited for your PC or Mac, and it's sixty bucks or fifty nine bucks actually a year. And if you run a small business, Carbonite has plans designed to back up all of your computers, servers, external drives, every, everything under the roof for one flat annual free fee. So to start your free trial, just head over to Carbonite.com, use the offer code TWIP T W I P, and you'll get two bonus months. It's two full bonus months if you decide to buy it. That's Carbonite.com and get use the offer code TWIP for two bonus months. All right, guys, we're about to close the show out. This is my favorite part of the show. This is the picks of the week segment. Jeffrey, what is your pick of the week? Well, I, I had one, and I was sitting here in, in my office, and I decided to add a second one. So, um, <laughs> if you don't, if you don't mind, um, the first one is, and I just I've, I've been wanting to get this thing for um, almost two years or so. This is the uh, um, a new um, uh, display for the for the Mac Pro that I use, and this is the, the ISO twenty seven inch um, display, which is a, a self calibrating display. And it's um, ISO is known for um, awfully high priced displays, unfortunately, but they're uh, they're really beautiful because they are um, the the color is absolutely even left to right, and the uh, the uh, display itself, the brightness of it is absolutely even all the way to the corners. They have really good viewing angle. Uh, this one also is self-calibrating. You can program it to calibrate, you know, once a day, once a week, whenever you're, whenever you want to do it. And, um, comes with a nice, uh, uh, hood that goes over it as well. And the resolution is, uh, is, is nice. You know, just really nice. I have been using two of Apple's 23 inch displays, which are perfectly fine for most things. But, um, the one, uh, the ones I have either through age or something, you could definitely tell there was a, a, a magenta to green shift across the, uh, across the display, even when it was calibrated. So that was getting to be, getting to be a problem. And this new ISO is absolutely spot on left to right. And, um, so I highly recommend that for someone who needs really precise color. And my second pick is, um, much more, uh, actual, uh, you know, fine art related. And that's, um, a magazine that I subscribe to, I get the paper version, but there are many digital versions for iPad and, and otherwise. Uh, it's a magazine called Lenswork. And I've been getting this magazine for years, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's very much like a journal of, of fine art photography. It's primarily black and white, but the website offers some, some work in color. And um, if you don't mind killing a few trees, uh, I, I do recommend the, the print version because it's, um, it's absolutely, absolutely beautifully printed. It's a small format magazine. It's about eight and a half by seven or so. And... Uh, it comes, I think it's every two months, um, but it's, it's really beautifully printed, uh, all black and white, like I said. Uh, but they do have some hybrid versions where you can get the print and digital, or you can get just the digital versions, I believe. And you can actually buy prints through them, too. They have a, a, a print purchase uh, service where you can buy some of the prints of uh, some of the work that you see in the magazine. So it's, um, I definitely would uh, recommend people uh, go check that out. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks, Fred Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. All right. Tristan, what is your pick of the week? Off to today's discussion, I think I'm going to pick the Sony NEX6. I may have to go buy that after today's discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that would that would definitely be my pick of the week. Uh, 
I loved the camera when I got a chance to test it. And then it's been a, about a month or two since I last played with one. And yesterday I had the opportunity to play with one again. And it's, yeah, somehow I'm going to have to um, rob a bank or something to make sure that I can acquire one store for Christmas. Um, but uh, yeah, it, I mean, not that it's that, that costly. It's just the, the, all the costs added up with Christmas. Um, and and if I can be uh, cheeky, the, the photo comments app, um, just search photo comments in the app store. Um, and you can check out the review for the in our November issue. I think it was we reviewed the Alpha 99. Um, if people are, are keen to to get to see what what uh, our editor Armani, so it's not just my opinion on the camera. There's uh, another person in our team who had the opportunity to review the Alpha 99. Very cool. All right. I have a just so you know, I have a tab open right now with the NEX6 in it. So. It's all your fault. Just just hit that buy now button. It's, it's all your fault if my, if my loved ones don't get the gifts that are on my list. It's your fault. <laughs> you get a, a discount if you enter the uh, promo code Tristan. Okay, there you go. Or photo comment, right? Uh, all right, Don, what's your, uh, what's your pick of the week? Well, I had to gear up when I went to the Yukon earlier this year, and I, I bought a new tripod. And uh, one of the things I was looking for was a really good pan head. And, and ball heads are great, but I've always used a pan head. I'm, I'm, I'm used to them. But there's one issue with them that I could never really get over until I found Enduro's PHQ pan head series. And uh, I use the PHQ3. And uh, what this allows you to do is set up the tripod and have everything like level and perfect. But if your tripod legs are not perfectly even on the ground and you try to spin the camera around to do a panorama, it goes all wonky. Um, but with this particular pan head, it has a separate rotation mechanism at the very top of the pan head, which allows you to rotate it even if your tripod legs are uneven and keep things perfectly, uh, perfectly straight and uh, you, know, you, you get your perfect panorama. It's got bubble levels and everything built right into it. And uh, when I was doing a lot of my landscape stuff in the wilderness, uh, it was indispensable uh, because you're, you're battling against time in the golden hours and you want to get things right with, without fumbling around with equipment. And it's built like a rock and, uh, and it served me very well. I've dunked it in water. I've beaten it up and it still works perfect. This is one of those things that you want to, you don't want to like save money on, right? I mean, it's, I'm looking at it on B&H, it's 395 bucks, but it's, uh, this thing will last you probably until the next ice age, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. It's... They have two versions and, and this, uh, this I think is that the heavier duty version of, of the two of them. Uh, there is a lighter one for lighter cameras, but, uh, I go big or go home when it comes to this stuff because I know that it'll take a beating and, uh, and I probably will not have to buy another tripod head as long as I'm a professional photographer. Yep, yep, love it. Cool, all right. And my pick is, you guessed it, the Transporter. So I've, like I said earlier, I set up a, a quick link for that at uh, fvj.me slash transporter, and that'll take you over to their Kickstarter page. But yeah, definitely give it a look. Even if you don't participate in the Kickstarter campaign, it's interesting to see what they're doing and... And for me, from a geeky marketer standpoint, I, I just like the way that they set up the Kickstarter page. It just looks really clean, and it, it gives you pretty much every piece of information you could possibly want to know about this thing before you decide to make the leap and commit to, uh, to jumping into the Kickstarter campaign. So that's my pick, the Transporter. All right, folks, we are at the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. Jeffrey, where can people go to stay connected with you? Uh, the best place is uh, my website, jeffreytotero.com, or you can uh, find me on Twitter at Jeffrey Totero. Awesome. And Mr. Tristan Hall, where are you at on the Ethernets? 
Um, photocomment.net, uh, probably the best place to talk for me, or about.me forward slash Tristan D. Hall, H-A-L-L. All right. And Mr. Don Komarechka, where are you at online? Oh, I'm most active online right now on Google+, Plus, so check me out there. Uh, you can find a link to that and a lot of other stuff that I'm doing, workshops and all the like, from my website, which is doncom.ca. Doncom.ca. Cool, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, this has been a marathon episode, so thank you for hanging in there. And listeners, to uh, keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, you can check us out at thisweekinphoto.com. And let me reiterate, please join our community on Google+, Plus <laughs> because we cannot let Don Komarechka beat us. <laughs> so join the TWIP community, please. And when you get there, say hi to both Don and I and Tristan and you know everybody else. That's, and Jeffrey, Jeffrey, you better be a member. Mm-hmm. So, I joined. I there you, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so all the members, say hi to all the folks there. That'll be a really easy way for you to stay in touch with us. And if you're looking for me directly, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me at my site. It's frederickvan.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.